have finally done it. It's taken nine years, eight years. And Many Halloween episodes. It's taken Halloween. It's taken Nightmare on Elm Street. It's taken Friday the 13th. And the thing that finally, it, it took Killer Kid movies. It took Bonzo <laughs> Goes to Africa. It took, it took so much. But on the fourth fucking Annual Halloween Paul and Jason crossover spooktacular. I have finally done it. Five films have finally sent Paul from the countdown over the goddamn edge. It wasn't terrible Asian horror remakes. It was five <laughs> Halloween films. The five. No, the five Hellraiser films. What? 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 Sorry. sorry. <laughs> the five Hellraiser films. We are recording no, this in the middle of your night, the middle of my mid-morning. And you're absolutely wrong. It wasn't five. It was eleven, Jason. It was but we're 11. only covering five one. because we're doing two parts. That's right. So you got six more to Holy go. Shit. This is what you're like after the first five. What are you gonna be like after the last six? Paul has yeah. finally broken. I have broken him. <laughs> He's half asleep, half liquored Not up. True. This that's true. This is amazing. Before we dive into it, I want to show you what I just got, Paul. Literally about an hour before we started recording, this just came in the mail. Oh, oh you have such size to show me, Jason. I have here a clamshell. What the uh, fuck original is the down the bottom? Hellraiser release from Japan. From Japan. At the time of its release, cost 14,800 yen. This is this from is about seven cents US. Toho Kushinsha Home Video, Cinema Land, <laughs> Hellraiser, and the rest of it I can't read. Um, they have no shyness about graphic imagery on the back, though. Look at that, man. This well, that's, what, that's what brings the Japanese in. Come on. Appar apparently, yeah. Wow. Uh, color is in English, stereo is in English. Uh, yeah, this is the NTC NTSC Japan edition of Hellraiser. Um, wow. Whatever 14,800 yen was in the 80s, I paid probably 10 times that much for this, <laughs> this clamshell. <laughs> so uh, the tape is in there. Uh, the clamshell is barely holding together. This was a rental. Um, this is from a Jap Japanese video store. So that's so how committed uh, we are. 10 times? 70, 70 cents for it. Excellent. Yeah, this is how committed we are here at Binge Movies to preserving the legacy of the home video store that I have brokered deals with home former home video stores and closing home video stores in Greece, Korea, South Korea, obviously. <laughs> there's, there's no <laughs> home video store in New Japan. Uh, in North Korea. But if, if, if Buena Vista wants to send 
any of us to North Korea to start a video store, I think it would be you, Paul. No, no, no. Surely it's you. If you have established the last video store in the universe in Akron, yeah. Ohio, there's no better man for the job than yourself. I've got you covered here in Australia, maybe even Australasia, but uh, North Korea has got to be your field. You've had so many years to get a business up and running there, a binge movies uh Australia, mm-hmm. up and running there. You promised me about three Halloweens ago you'd get it done. <laughs> it has not happened yet. What, what, are you, what are you doing? I feel like I'm very close. I feel like, <laughs> you know, we just need a few more of these titles to, to take over from Planet Video here in Perth. And if you're a Perth listener, you'll know what I'm talking about. We're almost there, Jason. I, I have confidence that by next Halloween, which won't be Ghoulies, <laughs> there'll be something else. <laughs> no, then no, we'll be no. ready to roll. Boy, you keep Push it off. It's going to keep coming back. <laughs> there Paul is a definite to... advantage to Ghoulies to, than Hellraiser. Do you know what that is? What's that? Four films to set 11. Well, so see, seven part of the problem better. is we got to do a minimum of five. Oh, so uh, the Ghoulies. You might have to, play, isn't it? They might have to go to college twice. You might have to watch Ghoulies go to college <laughs> twice. And we cover it two times. No, but on today's episode, we are going to be covering... The first five Hellraiser films, which includes Clive Barker's Hellraiser from 1987, Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, 1988, Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth, Hellraiser 4, Bloodline from 1996, and from 2000, Hellraiser Inferno. So the first four of those were released theatrically. The fifth one is the uh, uh, went to straight to video, and they've been straight the to video ever since. The beginning of the end, as yes. we refer to it. <laughs> yep. And in our next episode, we'll cover the next six. And we'll discuss those at the end. Well, oh Paul, I think without much further ado, I think it's time we get into it. I can't think of anybody to talk, anybody better in uh, the world to talk about kink, sadomasochism, and <laughs> eternal sounding uh, rods in the urethra. Ding, 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 ding. Then Paul from the countdown. Let's start with Clive Barker's sadomasochistic, religiously preoccupied gay subculture Horror extravaganza, the gothic, the chilling, the bloody 1988 Hellraiser, which currently has a 70% on Rotten Tomatoes. Somewhere beyond the light and the dark, beyond our secret desires and deepest fears, lies the door beyond all our limits. Such sights to show you. Hellraiser, there are no limits. Wait it on. Hellraiser was directed by Clive Barker with a screenplay by Clive Barker. It is based on <laughs> his novella, The Hellbound Heart. Um, it has a score, which the score for this movie uh, does almost all the heavy lifting. The Christopher Young oh, Hellraiser theme. Incredible. Wonderful call. Yep. Wonderful, cool. incredible. Uh, it was released September 10th, ni- 1987, originally, but it came out, mm-hmm. I think, in the States in 88. On a budget of $1 million, it made $14.6 million at the box office. So definitely a hit. A filet deviant opens a box from the Orient and sends himself to Hieronymus Bosch land, only to return on the wings of his brother's wife's orgasm <laughs> as the strangest <laughs> uncle to slither back to the family barbecue. Clive Barker gets strange in his cinematic debut. <laughs> All right, let's start with some fan knowledge here. So 
Based on uh, the Hellbound Heart, the Cenobites are not actual demons. They're not actually from hell. Uh, so this is this comes from the fan wiki for Hellraiser and the Cenobites. It says the, uh, the following. Cenobot, Cenobites change from time and medium. In their original incarnation, which is his novella, they manifested as devoted followers of a supernatural hedonism with unorthodox definitions of pleasure. Although vaguely described, this form of pleasure endorsed by the Cenobites involved two distinct forms, the expansion of sensation to an extremely painful point of sensory overload and enduring excruciating pain through incessant tortures that transcend traditional laws of physics. They exhibit no discernible morality or or immorality, merely the unwavering devotion to their craft. Um, so the first thing we got the other way is that the, from story to film adaptation, the Cenobites essentially go from these kind of background figures, extra dimensional beings who are from this extra dimension where pain and pleasure are all kind of mixed up. And they're very, um, again, yeah, they're sort of amorphous and amoral. They're a, they're a mixture of, of priestly Cossacks and butcher clothing and torture contraptions. And that's basically it. That's, that's the full description of them. It's, it's like, um, it's really a cosmic horror is really what the Cenobites are supposed to be. When this gets translated by Barker himself into the first movie, then obviously the subsequent films, which we'll get into, they kind of start to become a little bit more than that. Now I will say in this first film, Cenobites are kind of more closely aligned with, the original like story conception of them as being just kind of um, cosmic entities, cosmic priests of pain and torture, angels to some, demons to others. We never really see mm-hmm. the angelic part of their nature, but um, not in this film. Yeah, no. So there, right? Like there is something sort of more cosmic about them this first time through. Although they, they I wouldn't say they're amoral because they do lie to no. Kirsty. So, yeah. What do you make? What do you make of the Cenobites here versus like? Did you, well, first of all, have you ever read any of Clive Barker's stuff? And have you read yeah. Hellbound Heart? I have. I have read the Hellbound Heart. I was a very, very long time ago, and I've read some of his other novels as well, including the Scarlet Gospels, which was yeah. kind of delves into the, their mythology, right? Yeah, it, uh, Harry Demore, uh, his character from another novel, Lord of Illusions. Yeah, him, there you go. Thank you. Yeah, brings them all together in this in this sort of sequel to all of his works, and that film. That sorry, that that novel does not work at all because in the end, it's almost like Harry didn't need to be there. It's a little bit like Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Had he not been there, everything would have happened just the way that it was. But I was have been fascinated to a degree, was fascinated to a degree with with Clive Barker at this sort of not this stage because I was too young in 1987, 88, but sort of mid 90s when Lord of Illusions and Nightbreed and all these other films Mm -hmm. are coming out. And that led me to track back to Hellraiser. And I just I find this concept really intriguing. This idea of yes, sadomasochism brought to the absolute limit of pain and pleasure being in inextricable that you can literally have hooks tearing into people and tearing them apart will tear your soul apart. You're right. And it be in his mind, clearly, I I you know, we've talked before about the disturbing nature of certain filmmakers' minds. This is a place I would not like to spend a night in Clive Barker's mind. 
because or a this is the kind of shit that he <laughs> or be- oh, geez, dear God, can you imagine? Although yet we've never heard anyone come out and saying Clive Barker did X, Y, or Z to me. So he clearly chooses his partners very, very well. <laughs> or has very ironclad NDAs, yes. Yeah, that too, perhaps. But yeah, I find this whole series, at least the concept of them, The Hellbound Heart, I thought was a very intriguing novella. And this first film, incredibly interesting in the way that it's put together and where it comes from. Well, what's so funny about this, you know, is like, like I try to, when we have these conversations, not just you and I, but any of the binge movies episodes, pulling back the curtain just a little bit. I kind of try to match the energy of the conversation to the energy of the films. And what's so interesting is like, ultimately, this is all about sort of sexual deviance, perversion, uh, the, the, the combination of gay, hardcore S&M culture and Catholic in particular imagery is sort of like yep. inherently blasphemous. And that's sort of part of the point, right? Is that these are sort of, mm-hmm. this whole thing is sort of blasphemous. And, and like and, you said, Pinhead is very clerical in his. Yeah. Cop. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I mean, his original name is not Pinhead, it's Hell Priest. And the fans mm-hmm. named him Pinhead because of his appearance in a Fangoria magazine and then the movie. So in anticipation to the film being released, the fan culture called him Pinhead and that stuck and Clive Barker hates it because that's not the name of this character. But even <laughs> though, by the third movie, they're just calling him Pinhead in the movies because Barker has less and less to do with the movies as the series goes along. But yeah, it's okay; he makes all the residuals. But like, like we've had fun with Nightmare. We had some fun with Hellraiser. Like we are uh, uh, Halloween, rather. We've had fun, obviously, with the Friday series last Halloween. <clears throat> but this, at this point, especially this first movie, can can assume. <laughs> Jason, that you're yeah. saying fun with inverted commas around. Well, I'm, well, I'm talking about our conversations. The conversations no, are ener- energetic oh, I don't and fun and This will silly. be any less fun. No, no, no. But the issue here serious, is... serious, maybe? As, yeah. The issue here is that these movies, especially the first two, are yeah, we'll get there. really heady. They're very... Because the concept is, is intellectually stretching. The idea that there is a point in a, there's an extra dimensional realm from ours. There's a parallel dimension to ours that is at the boundaries hell. of the universe that, yes, is labeled hell. That isn't really our Judeo-Christian concept of hell. This isn't Dante's Inferno. Mm-hmm. These aren't real nope. demons. This isn't, this isn't how this works. It's almost like a magic dimension. And in that space and in that time, it's utter darkness and torture, and that is what pleasure equals. And it's it's an inversion of everything. And it's like it's this almost like the same challenge we had when we were talking about Prince of Darkness, where the it's so conceptual that it's really hard to visualize. And the moment you like incarnate, the moment you try to visualize Clive Barker's extremely intricate ideas about these beings, the Cenobites, and the lament configuration, and what the parallel universes around us, how they operate, the rules and the sort of uh, fetishistic religion that exists and the gash yep. and all this. The moment you conceptualize that into a movie, it, 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 be, it, be, it becomes, um, well, one, it becomes inherently less interesting and it has the chance, and the sequels prove this, to become exceptionally goofy <laughs> because <laughs> you're taking these sort of very abstract, again, heady ideas and you're you're having to confine them into 80s horror films and and 
I'll be honest with you. I don't think any of them have come close to being able to interpret this stuff. I don't know that it's interpretable. I don't know that it's filmable. And where this movie, the first film, has an advantage of what will come after is that it does have the strength because the filmmaker is the author. And so what Barker does is he he focuses the first film, and I think the second tries to follow suit, more on provocative visual imagery. He's more so trying to show you, like there's a lot of sudden shots to like almost abstract time-lapse photography and art. And um, there's just a lot of, there's again, there's a lot more focus on the imagery of it all than there is the dialogue or mythology of it all. And in, in a way more focus on visually telling this story than the Cenobites. The Cenobites are truly, 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 truly side, side, side players. The villain of the piece is Frank and Julia, and everything else is a side of that. It takes a long ass time for us to get to Kirsty as our clear protagonist. Oh, it's, it's really a family drama. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's a family drama with abstract, bizarro ideas. And he's, you know, they're like here's what here's here's part of what i mean paul we're introduced to frank he's introduced in shadow he's somewhere in the orient somewhere in the far east you know where strange things come from which is a bit racist it is a bit you know definitely yeah, like a this film's western, 35 years old yes it's the western perception that there's hidden secret things that come from the east or whatever but frank is sitting there he's cast in shadow we don't see his face all we see is his nails his nails are filthy. This is a man who's been in filth. This is a man who is a filthy person himself. He stinks. There are flies buzzing around him. He's disgusting. His teeth are rotten. Frank's bed has a, a sex idol and cockroaches on it. So it's, it's visually conveying to us filth. It's con conveying to us the mixture of sex and, and, and filth and disease. What is your pleasure? Yeah, right. Um, the house that he's staying in is full of Christian icons and symbols. But when Larry comes in, the first thing he says, but, when, when he sees yeah. all the Christian iconography is, none of this stuff means anything to me. We'll throw it out. And so it's like, yeah, but they, that's, they throw out the Christian imagery and hell literally breaks loose in their attic. You know, they get I mean, rid of the right. thing that maybe would have protected them. Thematically, that's really interesting. And I, I yeah. love the way you brought that up. But I think, in terms of what it says about the characters, it says so, so much that Frank and Larry, whatever they, they were brought up in this house, Frank's let it run to absolute ruin. Yeah. Larry's yeah. going to come in and, and try and restore it to its previous value because mum's he's died, I think. Yeah, but because Larry is trying to salvage his marriage. So that the rehabbing the house is a metaphor to rehabbing yeah, his marriage project. with Julia. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. But it, I think that that stuff's really fascinating, and we don't never really get any backstory beyond no. that for no. for Frank right. and Larry. But that's enough to show that one person kind of went the one person, one child went the the way of what society accepts as normal, which is you know meet someone else, you know work through your demons in terms of your relationship, and find someone who loves you, and then have a child and do better with that child. And yes, Kirsty right. really loves her dad. And he's done that. He's done that successfully. Unfortunately, yep. he's picked an absolute fucking horrendous partner in, in Julia. Well, well, the second and, partner, because the, they don't give us the specifics, but based on, again, imagery, I think the assumption is that Kirstie's mother died giving birth to her. Oh, I missed. Okay. I, I missed that part. Because so when Kirstie sees yep. her, like the shrouded figure on the table, and it's like giving birth, you hear a baby cry, and the sheet turns to blood. 
Right. My yeah, assumption yeah, was yep. she's that never works. had. Yeah, she never had a mom. That's why she's so close yeah. with her dad. Her dad was yep. a single parent, and eventually, later in life, and later in Kirsty's life, meets Julia. Unfortunately, meets Julia, and is trying to fill. He's trying to fill that gap and have the whole. He was once that nuclear family because he lost his partner, and that blinds yep. him to the fact that Julia is awful and doesn't love him at all, at all. Period. Yeah, yeah. And then, meanwhile, Frank has gone off on a completely different path. These are two young, well, men who have been clearly scarred by their childhoods. We never, yep. we never know why, we never know how, and that's never filled in for us. But there's enough here in this film for us to to draw those conclusions, and I think that's really fascinating that. One can go the conventional route and one can go the complete opposite route. And he's very happy. Frank's very happy for their family home to fall into ruin yes. before he meets his initial demise, if I can put it that way. Because, of course, we see a lot more of Frank through the course of the film. Yeah, Frank is somebody who is always living below the radar. We know this because just like offhanded stuff that Larry is saying. Um, he has no problem laying on a filthy, disgusting mattress in a house in ruins with rotting food all around him, pornography everywhere. Like he's a sadomasochistic sex maniac, basically. Like he mm -hmm. is, he's never satisfied. He's never sexually, sexually he says as much he's in the keep flashback. Pushing the limits. Get, keep push, push, yep. push, push. And then he's like, in the flashback we get with him and Julia, the one thing he says is like, it's never enough. Like they've had mm -hmm. sex all day. And he's like, he pushes her away and is like, it's never enough. And it's like, he just, he cannot be satiated. He cannot, he, 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 he is lust personified to the point of human degradation. And, yep. and then we get this incense, this like something about him through flashbacks, you know, well, let me go back to the religious iconography. When we eventually cursed eventually shows up at the house, all the religious icons, the Christian icons are on the sidewalk for the trash. And she mocks them. She laughs at them. And so the, these are obviously sort of irreligious people who are about to have a encounter with the worst religious zealots in the cosmos <laughs> and in the Cenobites. And <laughs> the other thing there, right, is like as this is happening, Julia is having a sexual preoccupation in her mind because she realizes Frank was there and she digs through Frank's sex photos, finds one. Uh, like a photo of him rips the woman's face off because she just went, she sees. So turns out she had an affair with Frank fucked him on her own white wedding dress, which is again, visual imagery. It's a metaphor yeah. for the corruption of the marital bed. It's the ultimate mm -hmm. infidelity. Like the day before her wedding, she sleeps with her that is it. To be brother in law. Could you, yeah. could you be any worse of a person? Right. Yeah. Could you be any worse? She's seduced by him. Just, don't and, get married. Yeah. Even the way he says, I'm brother Frank is so bizarre. Like who introduces themselves as brother Frank? Like, that has sort of a <laughs> weird religious overtone to it. It's not, I'm Frank Larry's brother. It's I'm right. brother Frank. I have a sister-in-law. I've never said I'm brother Paul. <laughs> I'm brother Paul. Yeah. You would never say that. It's obviously a dubbed voice. They dubbed over the actor's voice with a different guy, at least for this first film. So that adds another weirdness to Frank. Um, but anyways, as as Julia's in the attic and she's like lusting over this photo of him and like remembering their sexual dalliances together and she starts to like heave and climax in her memory, at the same time, Kirsty is coming in the doorway and they have two male movers and the male movers 
uh, who uh, who sort of looked up and down and almost sexually accosted Julia, who liked it, who absorbed. Which I don't understand. Can I just jump in here to say, yeah, Julia sure. is she's a fine looking person, but she's not worth the level of ridiculous attention she gets through the course of this movie. No, like, she's the not. Fact that no. Every male character including all the men she murders through the course yes. of the film are throwing themselves at her I, I don't understand the casting here I, I don't understand it either but i i i think what it's supposed to be is and i you, you sometimes you meet these people in the real world male female doesn't matter that they're not conventionally attractive or they're okay looking but there is a sexual magnetism to them that you can't quite explain. But do you think she's got that sexual magnetism? She I think never she's supposed to. One second. I, I agree. I think she's supposed to. I don't think it's about her looks. I think it's there's something that people. Looks, dress. Uh, I think there's whatever something Whatever the people, indefinable quality you're talking about. It's not I, there, for, at I least as far as I'm concerned. I think the idea, though, is that people are picking up on how lustful she is. She's on the exterior. She's cold. But inwardly, she's just as lustful and perverse as Frank. And I think I that know. the like idea that, those I think scenes where those movers, I think the concept, and I think the Larry's concept, just like let, accepting it. I'd be like, "What the fuck are you saying about my wife, you cunt?" Oh, sorry. <laughs> I think Ooh. the concept though is that the men are reading her correctly; that what she presents to the world is not what she really is. And I think they're reading it correctly. And I think it's I think it's all conceptual. I think that's part of the problem with this movie. But but Kirsty walks in immediately after they've just sexually accosted Julia. They do the same thing to Kirsty and Kirsty. Can you yeah, imagine yes. if you were daughter? I would Well, Larry's not there at the moment. Guys. Larry's Larry's gone. Yeah, off he didn't, he didn't hear that fear. part. That is fair. Right. And and Kirsty, I'm trying to I think given the eighties to her credit doesn't even buy. She's like, whatever the fuck. Off but that's just, just no, no, no. But it. that's the point. That's what makes her our protagonist. Cause she's got a mattress and they're offering a proposition her basically for sex with a mattress in their hands. And she pushes the mattress away and their yep. sexual advances yep. away. So this is Barker visually telling us this character is the pure character. This is your she's final girl. She's above what everyone else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's above all of the perversion and indecency that the rest of these people are swimming in. She's like her mother. What you said earlier on, yeah, it's a very, it is a very strange move because that shift only happens halfway through the film. Up to that point, we've been following, following Larry, and we're following Julia, yeah, and then Julia and 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 Frank, and then suddenly we're into cursing. I think that's one of the biggest problems with this movie is that the shifting protagonist. It's very hard to get a a strong feel and hold of. And just when we, it's very uncomfortable being with Julia, and then very, it's even more uncomfortable being with Frank. And now we're with with Kirsty. It's like, eh. Kirsty's got this boyfriend, Steve, and we don't give a fuck about their relationship. It's had, no. it's had half a breath to to, yeah. to 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 sit with us. It doesn't work. So no. if there's a problem with this film, and I do not say this very often, I think there's a better cut of this movie that would have been 15 minutes longer where we would have got more time with Kirsty and we would have yeah. come to appreciate her more as a protagonist. And that's a real shame about the movie because it does falter through the latter stages because of that. Well, originally, like in the Hellbound Heart, Kirsty is not his daughter. She is his coworker, Larry's coworker, who is secretly uh, harboring. Okay. She is she genuinely loves him, but has never been able okay. to tell him how she feels, or at the very least, it's unrequited. And yep. he's uh, fascinated with this Julia character, and so Kirsty knows that Julia is no good. But it reads: is is it, is it female rivalry? Is it sexual rivalry? Is it jealousy? And it's just actually this, no, works. Kurt, this is better 
uh, this to me actually works. Yeah, this works better yeah. that it's his daughter. And so is yeah. it like, well, are they estranged because it's a stepmom that came in when she was a grown woman, basically? Uh, or is it that there is something wrong with Julia? Because at first, she's cold, but you can't really say that there's anything wrong with her other than she's kind of mean no. and like, she's not evil. She's not the villain that she'd become, especially by the second film. But anyway, her sadomasochistic uh, uh, Julia. The moment she starts smashing people over the head with a hammer, she's pretty evil. Well, that uh, yeah, but that's that happens again halfway through the movie. Uh, otherwise, she just seems to be a, a loveless woman in a loveless marriage. That doesn't yeah, make you very austere, very, very yeah. severe, very cold, and yeah, it might make you a bitch, but it doesn't make you evil. It turns out she's yeah. more than a bitch; she is evil. Uh, but we don't know that at first. But anyways, Julia's sadomasochistic, adulterous lust, her memory of being penetrated by Frank. And climaxing happens at the exact moment that Larry, him, her husband, is penetrated by a nail. So there's some Christian iconography, a nail through the hand, mm. the shedding of blood, penetration, the penis. She remembers being penetrated as her husband is penetrated and the nail tears the flesh. And somewhere between the tearing of the flesh, the p- combination of pain, pleasure, blood, and the memory of cum, somehow sinful <laughs> passion and painful blood loss become the recipe for resurrection as Frank is reborn from hell under the attic floorboards where bits of his viscera fell after being torn apart by the Cenobites and the Lament configuration. He emerges from primordial goo as primordial goo, from which <laughs> arms then a spine... Stay with us. Stay with us. <laughs> from which the arms then a spine and a brain with ribs and organs appear a ghastly grotesque sight a sight julia is still willing to fuck eventually that's that oh, is God. what does this guy have we won't, we won't stop here because that's not the first the last time this happens in this series where someone who is grotesque beyond imagination is somewhat sexualized so binge movies 316 says how good dick gotta be to do all that. That's a, that's my variation on the oat milk uh, review from Letterboxd. Shout out to oat milk. But how good dick gotta be to do all that? Julia is, once this dick so bad, he doesn't even have a dick, Paul. He doesn't have a dick anymore. He doesn't even have muscle yet. He's literally Jason, just under me. I'm not doing. Under me. I'm not I'm not doing next year's Halloween spooktacular special unless you go out and murder someone and then ship their blood to me in containers so I can pour it over myself. That's the way it works. Okay. He is. My point is trying to say is it's a ridiculous moment in a very strange film, but you're right. How good does, doth that dick be? He is tar man. Frank here. He is under me. (laughs) This isn't even muscle yet. Like eventually, he but how becomes good are the effects? Like, how good are the effects? They are, but eventually he becomes like Slim Goodbody, who I don't think you have in Australia, where most of the stuff is in place. All he needs is skin. He's not there yet. He's basically a pile of fucking goo. His legs don't even work. He's like the vomit monster for Poltergeist Two. Yeah, and he's like Julia, it's me. He's like it's beyond she Dark goes, Man. Holy shit, that's Dick. She yeah she. Yeah. 
<laughs> she's well, she's terrified at first and she runs to the door. For, but the, well, she's terrified then, for about three and a half seconds. But then she stops because he goes, Julia. And she turns and she goes, Who are you? How do you know me? And he goes, It's me, for Brother Frank. And she's like, Oh my God. It's like, she's like, What happened to you? And he's like, You have to help me. They're going to find me, Julia. And at that point, I don't care if this thing knows my name. I don't care if this thing is some someone I used to fuck. I don't. I don't care if I believe it's the person I used to, uh, that I'm in love with. Uh-huh. I am uh-huh. getting the fuck out of that room. But for whatever reason, Julia is so digmatized by Brother Frank <laughs> that she not only stays, she begins to have a conversation with him about where he's been the last few years, <laughs> and and yeah, it's just hell. So fucking weird. So eventually, yes, we know this. A deal is brokered. Um, with with, with best, the best I could call is like the Lonely Hearts Club, where Julia will go to bars <laughs> midday in Britain. Well, wherever the fuck this movie takes place. That's the other thing. Is it Britain? No, it's Britain. Is it not Britain? Yeah, it is. It's it very is. clearly Britain, but some of these guys are dubbed over. So it's like this, it's in this yeah. amorphous, soft glow, low budget UK place. That so also yeah, the first two, the first two were shot in, in the UK. And the, I know it's the shot there, but they don't the ever explicitly yeah. say it's in the UK. But it's funny you say that because I never had any doubt this is this is in the UK yet. So Julie is British. Larry's not. Kirsty's Frank is not. Frank isn't. So why do their mum? Why? Do, does Why do they have a house in the UK? House yeah. in the UK no, no somewhere. Yeah. yeah. It, but it, it has this, I think, unintended effect of making the whole thing feel way more bizarre. Yeah. It's like yep. you, you have no sense of place. You have no sense of what city is this? Where are they? What are they? Who are these people? What does Larry do it's for true. a living? What it doesn't is, feel like, like it's London either. Yeah. Kirsty eventually gets a job at a pet shop, but that's like, that's all we know about her. And that comes two thirds the way through the movie. And she's got mm-hmm. a boyfriend named Steve, but she didn't live there. Steve. How does she have a boyfriend in a city she never lived in before? Like the whole thing doesn't make any sense. They have, they have friends there. Like it's just, the whole thing almost seems like it's already taking place. But it's also hell. Larry and Frank's mom's house. So she bought and sell it. So I don't even know they say mom. They just say the old lady, the old lady had this place. Was it their grandmother who raised them? Like we don't, is it an aunt? Uh, We don't fucking know. We don't know. I have more questions though, but this lonely hearts club, Julia goes out. She picks up men at the bar who are day drinking in Britain in the eighties. So, you know, top class and ties. Yeah. Yeah. Sniveling guys and tidy. And they're all, and they're all largely bold, largely bald, largely sad, soft in the middle begging for sex and at first she seems uh really unwilling to do this and basically frank is like i'll kill larry unless you get me men and she's like okay i'll do it and then even when the, she brings the first one back she doesn't want to do it until he flips on her and goes from a nice guy to a why'd you bring me here if we weren't going to do this you knew what you were asking for and like he starts to really yeah, push you're, himself you're on a her tease, bang. yeah yep. yeah and so then she finally is like, okay, all right, I'll give you what you want. And that seems to flip a switch for her. But she's horrified by the idea of killing these men at first. But she does it. She bashes their heads in in a creepy attic. Listen, if a woman ever picks you up from a bar in the middle of the day and seems a little too eager to have sex with you, as a man, you need to know that you're about to be robbed or murdered. Yeah. I cannot guarantee that your flesh is always going to be given to her boyfriend. 
but your money <laughs> probably will. There's a pimp. There's somebody. There's a women, pretty good chance. Yeah. Women do not throw themselves at men because they don't need to. And, and Correct. It, yeah. If a woman is behaving around you like women in pornos behave around men, you're about to be bludgeoned to death. I promise yep. you. So you're, Something you're gonna, good is not going to happen despite <laughs> your hope for otherwise. No matter how hard your dick is, the, uh, the hammer blow to the head will be harder. Uh, just remember that. So um, you're going to wake up at least in a bathtub missing a kidney, at least, bare minimum. But then on, these, on, these, on these guys, they all fall for it, yeah. and so they all follow her back. And my question to you is, uh, since you're half in the bag, maybe you'll understand this more. Is Frank eating these men? Because he's well, like, look, don't look at me, Drew Loud. Don't look at this. I'm going with he sucks them dry. He desiccates them. He uses How? their. I, I don't. That's a ridiculous question. How does anyone do anything in this in these series of films? Well, later on, we see in, in subsequent films, which I'm sure we'll get to, we see people sucking literally them dry so they look like they are desiccated corpses. And that's well, kind of what we get. Well, he does it to Julia at the end. He gets her yep. at the end in this movie. But I just don't understand, like. No, don't you can't you can't <laughs> apply logic at this point because I am absolutely going to take to task some of the later films around okay. All right. what happens where this coming back to life and escaping from hell thing, which is very very vague and never sketched in, and there's no rule book for how you can do this. Because why would you publish that? Because no one should escape from hell. But nevertheless. It's very loose and played very, very whatever you want to interpret here because otherwise this whole yeah. film series, if it doesn't already, falls apart. I don't know the exact step-by-step -step of how to get out of hell. I do know the recipe is at least one part cum, one part lust, one part blood, one part pain, mm -hmm. one part masturbation, at least mental. Where you, I presume where you met your end. So yes. It also has to fall on the plate. So when Larry cuts his hand, as you mentioned earlier, yeah. and walks into the into the attic, goes, Julia, I can't deal with blood because I'm a fucking man, baby. And he flicks <laughs> his blood everywhere. And that's how what basically. How, how weird is his performance when he comes in with the cut hand? He's like, look at this. So strange. I'm not sure. What, uh, I don't know what the actor's name is. I'm looking right here. Andrew Robinson. Andrew Robinson in this film goes from being one of the worst actors of all time to being one of the best actors of all time. And Frank is in his skin. Well, the way he, he, well, cause he traditionally plays villains. Oh, does he? Okay. Yeah. He's almost, I think he's fantastic in the last 20 minutes of this movie, but yeah. in the first half, I'm like, Oh my God, what is he doing? Well, I think in the first half he's doing what he doesn't normally do, which is play a, a yeah. good guy. Larry is not a bad guy. He's a good father. He's just kind of a dolt. No, he's, no, he's a really good. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. But he's kind of shit. As an actor in this in the first half of the movie, I, yeah, so I, I when think he, he be, yeah, yeah, when he becomes when he the becomes villain. Frank, yeah, yeah, holy yeah. shit, is he good? And he yeah. delivers the most iconic line of every film of all of these at yes. the very end, and it's perfect. So, it's really yeah. fucking disturbing, though. It's gross. It's can not we, cool. Can I? Yeah. Can I jump in here to say we haven't spoken one word about how far we are into this episode, depending how much you edit. We haven't spoken one word about Doug Bradley as lead. Cinnabite. Because he hasn't, he only head. shows up for a, a flash in the beginning and then at the end, we're getting there. But I really, I, and I do want to really emphasize this. You mentioned the score by Christopher Young, which yes. is 
fantastic. Yeah. I don't think there's a million dollar film that has a good a score as this movie. No. Okay. So before you go down that rabbit hole, let me just say this. When this this movie is Julia's movie predominantly, then it becomes Kirsty's movie. Yep. And I want to explore Julia a little bit. What do we what do you okay. make of her, Paul? Because like she said, seems I'm, I'm, she seems unwilling for Larry to be harmed in any way. Like yeah, throughout most, most of the, of the well, movie. Well, she does. Well, yeah. even then she, she never really it. Yeah. She stops it. There's a moment where Larry's banging away on top of her and, and Frank in full Yes. Yes. As you say, Tarman outfit is about to kill him. Yes. And she basically shoes him away because she's still trying to protect him. So she's not at this film anyway, she's not completely evil and horrendously com- completely taken by yeah. Frank. Because then but, Frank mocks her and he goes, what, do you love him? And she goes, you know I don't. But she at the same time doesn't seem at all willing for him to be a part of any of this. She just wants him safe and she, she doesn't really seem interested in hurting Kirsty. She doesn't seem interested in hurting. Well, she's, you know, she doesn't, no, you're right. Not interested in hurting Kirsty, but clearly Kirsty is a, a rival and an annoyance yes. and yeah. fuck off, you know. Uh, look, step, step parenting is one of the hardest gigs in the world and not having to go anyone who's a step parent. This seems to be really playing out in living color in this, yeah. in this film. So Kirsty and Julia, according to Clive Barker, when he, he, he wanted to make a movie and they had, they had tried to adapt some of his work previously. And so when he wrote Hell, uh, The Hellbound Heart, he wrote it specifically with the intention that he himself would adapt it as a script to make Did a he movie. Did really? Right. Yes. It, which is just, of all the things to pick to make a movie, you pick the, probably the most unfilmable of all of your concepts. But anyways, that was the, and his intention was to create a new kind of, continuous horror villain because he wanted to make multiple of these and it was supposed to be julia now yes, so I just, i'm reading this as well yeah. i have read this as well yeah so what's interesting though is to your point about the cenobites when the score kicks in when the cenobites arrive that quick that christopher young i think score yep. and the way the camera pans to to douglas bradley and the production design, and the set design. The direction all of a sudden becomes more lively. The cinematography all of a sudden becomes more athletic. Every, literally everything in the frame becomes subsumed by the Cenobites. Yes. And we yes. pan from one to the next. I don't know that it, Clive knows this, but subconsciously, what he's he is no most interested in are the Cenobites. The Cenobites. He's, of course. He's not as interested Come in on. Julia as he consciously thinks he is. Julia should never have come back after this movie, although I, you know, there's a place for her in the second film. We'll get there in short order. But in this film, her end is appropriate and yes. it works. And Sort of quasi-tragic. Quasi-tragic. <sighs> She's led astray by a guy who never really loved her, blah, 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 blah. Uh, the moment you start bashing some dude's head in with a hammer, even if – He's been a little bit over the top. Yeah. No, a lot over the top. That's not fair. She has to defend herself, but she doesn't have to defend herself to the point of knocking his jaw his jaw askew. It's true. It's true. I'm not saying she's innocent, but I'm saying that she's she's not the character. She shows up at part two. She's basically like oh, super at villain, that point, evil, she's evil incarnate. Yeah, she yeah. literally calls herself the evil stepmother. Like that, like that's what she ends up becoming. She's not so she's just kind of like a weird, sad, nasty bitch, pathetic character in this. And 
that's but it's like okay you can tell me that's what you're most interested in it's really her story nah. but your direction exposes something that i don't think like the reason why audiences gravitated towards this is because the the most interesting and best direction of the hellraiser first hellraiser film by clive barker himself with that with everything everything i said around it is the cenobite stuff so when it's they, also when, Doug ahead. Bradley's performance. And there you Doug go. Bradley's performance. He ends up being the star amazing. of this movie. And he's for in it less such than a, seven minutes. Yeah. Five, I'd say five minutes exactly. For su- he's so compelling. His voice is perfect. Yes. And thankfully, through the next couple of films, he gets more and more screen time. And I. Spoilers ahead. The more pinhead I get, the more Doug Bradley I get, the happier I am. Well, that's not true for me, but I <laughs> I think they fuck with the voice electronically a little bit in this movie, and they do it some more and more. They add a lot of resonance to it in some of the other movies, and the, what, what just staggers me about these, this and Freddy, the Freddy series, Nightmare on Elm Street, the voice is never the fucking same. There is so little attention to detail to sound design on these horror movies from the 80s, it drives me fucking nuts. Freddie doesn't sound the same from scene to scene, let alone movie to movie. And neither does Doug Bradley here. It's always his voice, but how they modulate it and what, how much resonance and reverb they put on it, they fucking change constantly. And it's like either he has a distorted voice or it's just Bradley's voice. But pick something. But in my yeah. opinion, this first film gets it perfectly. There's just enough enhancement to it that he kind of clears through the audio channels. The score is underneath him, but you can still very clearly hear him speak of this gothic music and imagery and he's got this reverberating voice he's like the box you opened it we came we came he speaks in a very sort of um, macabre slow priestly vaulted way of speaking right like it's it's being all become memeified of like we'll tear your soul apart but there's a very like epic almost gregorian way of speaking it's it is like a catholic priest i at the at the lectern uh you know giving the message it is this sort of um there's a liturgical way that he speaks that is ornate even though it's it about works. violence yeah so good it's so good so eventually kirsty finds the box she accidentally opens it she's starting to figure out like she's her dad's like, just try to make friends with Julia. I know she's being a bitch, but maybe it's just because she's lonely or things haven't been working in our marriage. Just like she just needs somebody to talk to. So Kirstie have love for her dad is like, fine. She sees her, what she believes is her stepmom having a, an affair on her dad, which would explain a lot of her behavior. And when she investigates, she finds the puzzle box. She accidentally opens it. The Cenobites come and female Cenobite and Butterball and Chatterer and um, Pinhead appear. And I know those are all mostly fan names, but that's fine. And Pinhead, appe- Pinhead appears and says, like, the box, you opened it, we came. Like, who are you? And this is where we actually finally get some exposition of what the fuck is happening in this movie. And the rule basically is, is if you open this box via the power of desire and you're curious or lustful or whatever... It opens a portal, opens a door to another dimension. Angels to some, demons to others. Demons to others. Yeah. 
Here's here's one of my many problems with the with the lore of this series, which get more and more complicated and, and ridiculous yeah, the further sure. we go through it. But they also say that your hands will open the box themselves. They'll find a way of doing it. I guess the implication is the more perverse and extreme you are, the easier it will be to open. But Curse yes. is never portrayed as being perverse or disgraceful or disgusting or sadomasochistic or any of those things which are this film will at, at one level hold as being not good. Well, see, the, the, they, um, so the first film, to me, makes it seem as if, if you open this box, they're coming. Yeah. The second but film, like, he sta- he stops her. She's like, no. And, and the female Cenobite's like, we're not taking her? And he goes, no, it's not hands that call us, but desire. Like, because they don't want right. to take Tiffany. And so I, I think that it fluctuates based on are the Cenobites just completely amoral, like you open the box, we come, we torture you. Or are they have some kind of protocol? They're, they're well, I don't well, call them. Can I stop you there, Jason? Can yeah. I stop you there? They're yeah. not torturing you. They are giving you an experience beyond pain and pleasure. Sure. Where they they're knowing your together. flesh. They're knowing yes. your flesh. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank uh, God you mentioned the word flesh. We are must be half an hour into this recording. <laughs> And no one has said it. <laughs> well, we'll hear it 50 bajillion times. <laughs> but the, yeah, it's, it all comes down to how they want to couch these Cenobites. Are they amoral? Are they sort of anti-heroes? Or are they the villains of the piece? If they're the villains, then they're going to they're gonna lie and betray and torture you. And you basically just look at the box and they're going to come and rip your soul out. If yeah, you're, this is the only it, film you can interpret them. The only film you can interpret them is amoral. And not well, but, at the, but they, they they straight up lie to Kirsty though, because Kirsty. Well, I'm saying this is as close as you can get. Yes, they still say yes, no. Yes. you open the box. Yeah, and, and I so, every time I talk about Cenobites for the next fucking three hours of this episode and the four hours of the next episode, <laughs> I am going to refer to Doug Bradley's pinhead in my attempt at his voice. So get used to okay, it without all fine. the resonance. Okay, good. So Kirsty has kind of put two and two together, and she's figured it out, and she's like. She's she basically they're like we're gonna come and we're gonna we're gonna know your flesh and she's crying. He's oh please no tears, child. <laughs> you have you have an eternity of suffering and all this sort of stuff. And she's like, so you've done this before? And, they're, and the woman's like, oh yes, many times. I honestly I think the female Cenobite and this first one, first two, but especially this first one, is equally as disturbing as Pinhead and great voice too. Uh, just Chris the way Kirby. she speaks. Yeah. And, and she's Chris. like, yeah, she's good. They're all, good. They're all, all these Cenobites. Cenobites. Yeah. They're amazing. They're, that, that's the thing we're trying to say we, when we've talked around. Yeah. The practical effects in this yes. film are the makeup. Incredible. Yeah. For a million dollars. For one million dollars, this film that we have is so impressive for that level. And she goes, uh, to a man named Freight Cotton. And he's like, yes, we know his flesh well. And she's like, well, what, like basically, what if I told you that he escaped? He escaped from you, and he, impossible. And then, and then Pinhead kind of catches on, or maybe the female somebody does it. She's like, "What are you proposing, child?" And it's like, "I'm proposing." She's sobbing now, begging for her life. Like, if I give you Frank, you take him and you leave me alone. And, then, and she's like, "Well, what what does he have to do with you?" Basically, it's like, "Was well, it my uncle?" And blah 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 blah, and this whole explanation. And he, so Pinhead's like, I want to hear it from him himself. If he really has escaped us and he's really here, I need to hear him confess for himself 
that it's he's a, that he's Frank and that he escaped, and then maybe, maybe we'll let <laughs> you go. But if you try, if you lie to us, you try to cheat us. The famous line: "We'll tear your tear soul, your soul apart." apart. And that becomes the rest of the movie. Is she's got to somehow figure out a way of getting Frank to confess that he's escaped hell while trying to save her father. But lo and behold, it's too fucking late because too Frank late. has killed her father. It's wearing her skin like an Edgar suit, which seems like it'd All be right. very obvious because All there's right. blood yes. and viscera and goo Thank all around you. the scalp line Thank of this you. guy. Yeah, yeah. Here we go with one of my big problems this entire series, and it's never yeah. more prevalent than it is in one and two, though there are some later films where they also play with this. If you pick up someone else's skin and put it across your face, it is not going to perfectly meld with who <laughs> you are. Yeah, you have a skull structure. Yeah, right. Yes, you have, you have a skull, skull structure. structure. Your skin has 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 you know uh, spread across that. Yes, yes. It is ridiculous to think for one second that Kirsty looked at Larry, her dad, and went, "That's my dad." Especially after. His first line of dialogue, which again, because Andrew Robinson's performance at this point is very, very different, you would realize it's so well, dumb that, that takes but so long. When Frank puts on his brother's skin, not only does he instantly have the height and build and facial structure of his yes. brother, he yes. has his voice. He has his voice. He, the so, voice thank doesn't you for transfer that either. Yeah. This is dumber than face off. It's amazing, but it is. Well, at least Men in Black got it right because he doesn't look right. Like it's a bug in the Edgar yes. suit, and Edgar does, it's like his skin sagging, and it does. He's like, rawr, 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 face off, yeah, face yeah. off, not Men in Black. Face off, yeah, yeah. Men in Black, Men in Black, at least like understands the concept is ridiculous. Yeah, film that's in the vault. So it takes her way too long to realize that this is not her dad because the way he's touching her yes. and the way because she's already seen him without skin. He's like. It's me, Uncle Frank. Oh, beautiful Kirsty, come yeah, to me. Blah, 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 blah. Um, and that's the subtext here is that Uncle Frank, I don't even know if you can call it subtext. The oh. text here is that Uncle Frank wants to commit incest with his niece. Oh, he's, he, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's as is, bad as it comes. Which honestly, after all the grotesqueries we've seen in this movie, the thing that makes my skin crawl the most is how lecherous he is to his own niece. Oh, because yes. like the rest of it is fantasy. The rest of it is comic book bullshit, horror novel. Like it's not happening in the real world, but a creepy, filthy, pervy uncle gaining the trust of a young woman and molesting her is very real. And they're, they're definitely yeah. tapping into that here. Yep. And, if, and then when he's like, as Larry, he's like, Oh my beautiful beautiful Kirsty, you've grown up into such a beautiful woman and she's like daddy we have to get out of here we have to go we have to yeah. julia what the fuck are you saying dad yeah like oh, julia's wait. we have to get away from julia we have to get frank's back we have to get away like bad things are going to happen and then she's like starts to sense that something's not right with her dad which would be obvious from the viscera hanging off of his head but so she starts <laughs> backing up backing the line up, of blood up. around his yeah and she goes he goes Oh, Kirsty, where are you going? And she's like, no, it can't be. It can't be. And that's when he goes, come to daddy. It's so fucking gross. Yep. It is the most disturbing, gross. 
it skeeves me out, puts shivers up my spine when he says that. I said, Andrew Robinson fucking killing it. And then when Kirsty realizes, she goes barreling back upstairs to the Cenobites, pushes Julie out of the way, and he flips the switchblade, and he goes, well, fuck, fuck the cat and mouse then, or something yeah. like that, the cat and mouse games. And he's just going to skin her and kill her or whatever and absorb her flesh. And then she pushes Julia in the way of the blade and he just says, fuck it. And just, to, to, you know, sucks the life. Desiccates her. Yeah, yeah. Desiccates out of Julia. And when we finally get back upstairs. Sorry, babe. Sorry. Yet, later babe, on, we yeah. see Julia. Julia has got the, the lament configuration in her hand and the chain sticking out of her. Like she's been dragged to hell now. So, huh? I don't understand. Yeah, that doesn't. It's a horrible image because yes, eventually Kirsty runs into her and her body's on the bed with the box open. And so I don't, I don't fully know how that all that, makes any sense. That sets up the next film, yes, or whatever else. But but A does not equal or does not equate. I to just B. meant I, I took that more as being her participation in the blasphemous resurrection of Frank is equivalent to her opening the box. She opened the box. It would have been nice then. At the moment that she died, to see all the chains coming, hooking out of nowhere as they do in this film, and yes, and dragging into us, so we could at least make that connection. So I think that's something that that lacked in terms yeah, of this narrative yeah. of this film. Well, anyway, so f- he's confronting uh, uh, Christy again and is about to kill her, but she, he, he, she very wisely gets him to more or less confess that he's like, I had to come back from hell and I'm yep. not going back. And then all the spooky lights start showing up. And he's like, what is this? Question. And he looks around and the chain. Yeah. That dong. Yes. Noise. Is that the soundtrack or is that happening in the movie? Oh, that's a great question. I don't know. Dong. Yeah. I don't know. I assumed is it, it diegetic was or non-diegetic. In, uh, yeah. I assumed it was diegetic in the movie. It's happening. Sorry. No, I assumed it's just a soundtrack. Non-digest. We just we hear it, but not them. But there's a later scene in one of the very last scenes of the film, which implies no, straight out says, you hear that bell, they're coming. I'm like, oh shit, what? Because no one reacts like they're hearing a bell. They're reacting That's to the walls parting, which which shouldn't be. Like, what why the fuck is this wall to my right opening up and there's blue light coming through? Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, we hear the dung because the score again is so good in this movie. It's yeah. all mixed in with that. Yeah. So I'm a bit confused. But someone well, made the decision on the ass- line that it, it's part of it. Yeah. I would assume it is part of it, though, because it's almost like a, like a Catholic church bell ringing or like uh, the beginning mm-hmm. of a religious ritual, like a gong going off. Yeah. Yep. And that, like the, 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 um, the liturgy, liturgy has begun. The liturgy of flesh has begun, and here comes the hell priest. And there might be hundreds of Hellraiser fans who are just saying, what a dickhead. Why would you have this guy on if you don't even understand that? <laughs> but honestly, I didn't. I always thought it was part of the score until whatever point in whatever yeah. film it was, which we'll get to, I'm sure. I'm like, oh, fuck, really? Because no one reacts to the gong noise. They react to the, the wall opening and blue light and then Cenobite sliding out. And so then, obviously, uh, uh, Frank, who's been nothing but a loving uncle, feels betrayed by his niece and is like, you bitch, look what you've done. And he's about to kill her, and then the <laughs> hook goes in his hand. He gets all hooked up again till all of his brother's skin is stretched around, and then you see Frank's rotten teeth. 
and he's licking his lips lustfully like he's still Jesus even though even though he's all fucked up with the hooks and the centibites around him it's like he can't help himself he still wants to get to his niece to, he's still to get, no he's still getting off it's not even about he's that still he's getting still off. getting he's getting off he's getting yeah. off yeah I'm not saying and, he wouldn't get to his niece if he could, but he's getting off at that point. And then uh, his eyes are full of lust. And he's licking his lips at her and he's getting off. And then, uh, yeah, he says, Jesus wept, which makes no fucking sense, but it's creepy as fuck. And then it's torn apart, torn not asunder. The last time we'll hear that in this series. Yeah. <laughs> and then, this, and then uh, Kirsty gets up, tries to run out of the room and the female centibite is chasing her with a, a uh, butcher hook and also uh, what have been used in priestly sacrifices of fucking human flesh. Cinnabots. Yeah. And they, those lying, cheating bastards, they want to take her anyways. And her boyfriend at some point has made an appearance in the house just yeah, trying thank to you. save her. Exactly. What I was like, you've forgotten to mention the fact that Steve has been yeah. to dinner once and they've been out walking once and yeah. now he arrives just in time. I love the fact that when this monster thing is crawling towards them, the engineer towards them down there. Yeah. Is that what it is? The engineer. It's known from as the engineer. The depths of hell or whatever yeah. this alternate dimension is, and the door. He doesn't even blink an eye. He's like, "Come on, let's get out of here." Yeah, well it's done, sort of Steve. like this I reckon upside down dog shrimp. I don't know how else to call yeah. it. And it's like walking That's good. up, like a scorpion tail and yeah. shit. Yeah, and Steve <laughs> barely blinks an eye. He just gets Kirsty out of there, and then they get out, and then we get some really cheap one million dollar effects where the yes. house burns down because we don't see that. Because how can we? And and then the vagrant who has been stalking her, sort of, kind of seen him once before. In eating the grasshoppers shop. in the pet store, yeah. Yep, eating all the food of the other animals. How dare he? And he turns into an evil dead 2 type stop motion monster and picks up the lament configuration flies and flies off into the distance. End film. Oh, no. other than we go back to the shop in. There's another guy in the, in the same seat yep. that Brother Frank was what in. What is your pleasure? So what is your pleasure, sir? Which is a horrible racist yeah. caricature. Yes. And then the movie ends with that amazing score. The movie, I didn't mean to recount the entire thing, but be, again, because it is exceptionally visual, even more than dialogue, like you almost have to, when you're talking about it, you almost have to talk about the visual imagery beyond even the gore effects of it all. You have like the way that he is communicating the story is through filth on a mattress or something strange in the wall or, bugs in this yep. kitchen sink like it's it's all it's all um almost art house installation it's less than it's almost like um weird twisted abstract impressionistic art and the second one's going to pick up on that and go even further in that direction to oh for sure way less sure. effect but this movie is of the first five hellraisers in my opinion the best i don't want too much pinhead i keep them vague keep them mysterious keep them interesting Keep them cast in the right kind of light. Eight out of ten for the one. Whoa. And well, a lot of that is largely do the you've said it a million times. A million dollars. This was a independent, low budget horror film. First time director who's was also the writer. Doesn't always work well. Go check out Maximum Overdrive. So Clive Barker really <laughs> achieved something here that isn't isn't always logical, but is always disturbing. I wouldn't even say it's it scary is. as much as it is skin crawling. So it's an eight out of ten. It is my number one, and it's going on to the short list. Wow! So you've you have basically shot your load very early yes. in this film, in this series, I should say. Yeah. Um, I'm going to keep things interesting. This is not my number one. It's my number two of the week. I think 
I don't like it as much as you do. I think the end really fumbles a lot, unfortunately, particularly the very, very poor effects when we get round to the end of the film. I don't like the switch to Kirsty as a protagonist. It doesn't work. It just happens. and You're just meant to go along with it. So long story short, I'll give you seven out of 10. It's my second of the week. <sighs> Fuck you, Paul. I know it's going to be number one. And it's <laughs> awful. All right, moving on to Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. Do you indeed? <laughs> which came out in 88. I think I think the original Hellraiser came out in 87. I think I misspoke earlier. But uh, Hellbound, yeah. Hellraiser 2, 1988, which has a 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. Last year, Clive Barker brought us a unique vision of hell. Now they're back. Your suffering will be legendary even in hell. And this time they brought a surprise. Good. A fight. <laughs> Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, time to play. Rated R starts Friday, December 23rd at a theater near you. Check newspapers for listing. It was directed by Tony Randall. It was written by Peter Atkins with a story by Clive Barker. It's a triumphant return of William Hope, not seen since the days of Aliens as Lieutenant Gorman. This film was released just in time for the holidays, December 22nd, 1988. Take the whole family out to see Hellbound, Hellraiser 2 at the cinema. On an undisclosed... Well, the weather outside (laughs) is frightful. frightful. On an undisclosed budget, it made $12.1 million. Kirsty Cotton is admitted to the psych ward under the care of a doctor who just so happens to have a Cenobite fetish just in time for stepmom Julia to ooze her way out from blood and cum. That's twice I've said cum. <laughs> <laughs> Lieutenant Gorman almost saves the day until Kirsty has to take matters in her own hands along with a mentally challenged young lady to destroy the Cenobites. Let me tell you what I like about the movie before I get into all the things I don't like about Hellraiser 2, basically. Far um, away, sir. I like the introduction, further exploration of Pinhead as Elliot Spencer. It's one of the few times in horror history that I think yes. showing the character before he was the monster doesn't weaken the monster. 100% agree. It adds something I love, to I love yeah. the revelation that these are, were people. These were people, not just Cenobites were all people before they got put into the, whatever this monster configuration thing, which you see Chenard or whatever you say his name. Yeah. The doctor get put into, he gets, this is how the proper Cenobites get made by Leviathan. Yeah. I love this. That's the biggest thing about this film that I love. Maybe I say the same thing. It is the enriching of the lore of this universe and it works. Almost all of that enriching, that expanding of the universe works. There are some very dodgy decisions later in the film, but I love that basic addition to it. They, and the fact that they, you know, we're kind of jumping ahead to the end, but they, or mostly towards the end, they do not know that they were human. They don't remember being human. That's right. Yep. Because they, then they're, the Cenobites believe that they've always, we've always been here. That's what they say to Kirsty, Like we've always been here. Like they assume they're demons. Essentially. They assume that they are, have always been part of Leviathan and they don't remember a mortal life whatsoever. Uh, but he's, I mean, he was taken during the second world war. So it's only been a few decades that he's been the hell priest. Like he's not, you know, there's been pinhead. So it's very interesting. Um, I think, uh, Steven is very swiftly eliminated and replaced. Was he in this week? No, but they, they say, oh, well he was already released and sent home, but we're keeping you because that's it. 
Yeah, your family was I, murdered, I had, so we assume you killed I had the him. same note. I had the same yeah. note. Steve, he's gone home. Don't worry about him. What? Well, this, this man literally almost <laughs> went to hell for her. Yeah. And we don't see him again? Stupid no. decision. But the that thing guy, I like sure about the actor it, was available. The, the, what I like about it, though, is he's replaced with Gorman as Kyle. And you think, okay, well, this is just going to be the Steven replacement. But he's very quickly killed. He's very quickly dispatched. And, very, and, it, and I have to say, I really, what I really liked about it is we see Chenard as the, again, the 80s fucking every psychiatrist as a murderer psychopath. or a yeah. fucking pedophile or a psychopath. Yeah. Yeah. And here's another one in Chenard. So his, his registrar in waiting turns out to be a really good guy who unfortunately doesn't make it past 45 minute mark of the film or 40 no. minute mark of the film. I was sad when he went. I have to say, I thought maybe he was not, he didn't need to be the hero. Kirsty's got to be the hero, but. It would be nice to have him supporting her, but they really raised the stakes by killing him off. So well done, Phil. So the Chenard is a fetishist. It turns out he's been tracking the lament configuration. He's basically a serial killer, and he went into becoming a surgeon. <laughs> because in the flashbacks, he's, it's very clear. he's a psychiatrist. He's the head psychiatrist of the Chenard Institute. Yeah, but he he's an MD as well because he's doing surgeries. He's doing the lobotomies and whatever. There's... Um, yeah, that's a good point. And he's developed that's, he's uh, developed the Chenard some specialties. Well, he's yeah. developed the Chenard technique, which is some sort of thing that he's doing to the brain. It's some sort of brain surgery he's developed in this machine. The, but Can the we long, talk a little bit about the long and the short and of it his, is he is a serial killer because we flash back to him as a child and he's performing surgery on animals. He's torturing animals <laughs> medically. Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. I'm just <laughs> laughing at how. Ham fist of this film is in establishing a villain. Well, also, also the coincidence the that he's in love with Cenobites and knows all about their lore, has maps, yeah. maps of the hell dimension, has 16 different versions of the lament configuration puzzle box that he that he just has in his personal collection, and also just so happens to become Kirsty's <laughs> doctor. Can I can I you're absolutely right, but can I say I think that's one addition to this world that there's multiple lament configurations. I think that's a really nice touch. And that, that call it hell, don't call it hell, whatever it is. This alternate dimension, it doesn't rely upon one piece to get out and about and do its mayhem. Yeah. It's, there are multiple avenues to do that. So I think that's a nice addition. What I don't like at all about this movie and what really brings it down for me is the fact that Chenard, regardless he's a head psychiatrist, surgeon, whatever, of the Chenard Institute, can just take people, patients from this Sanita uh, sanitarium walk them to his house and then they never come back and nobody notices nor raises a, a question or three so that really did my head in and as well as how poor the security is on his home when you know um gorman and kirsty come knocking just let themselves in and walk through a place where people are murdered sorry kidnapped murdered and uh turned to pulp well, that was that. That doesn't bother me as much, just because I think that preys upon our fears of like mental health institutions and the fear of being sent to an asylum because you'll be locked away and never seen again. And they can do God know they can do experiments on you. And there was obviously very real, at least stateside, very real stories of people being experimented on and be go, uh, having grotesqueries done to them through medical abuse and all this sort of stuff. So I think the movie is using that to kind of play upon real world fears and that the idea that the mental institution itself is a form of hell. I, I, I get all that. And then the, even well, the architecture well, of it, the asylum matches do. the architecture of hell. And I, I, I get that part. 
they do eventually get there and saying that when when they're going back to the hospital and the doors are opening between the world. But for me, and maybe this is the state of mental health yeah. in Australia, is is a lot more regulated and there's just no way anything like this could ever happen and it not be reported instantaneously. So it threw me completely out of the movie. Well, yeah, I don't think they could. I don't... I think it's less likely to happen now in the States. First of all, we don't really have a system like this anymore in the States. But I think it's more so this is an 80s film that is hearkening back to a lot of the urban legends and some real-world events of what sanitariums were like. We're talking in the 30s and 40s and 50s into the 60s. But this is the late 80s. Viewing very yeah, but, generous that, but horror case. movies always call back to the things that their, the, their audiences are already in, in afraid of. You are, and the horror stories have always done that. You are afraid of disease or this, that, whatever. And so the monster becomes a metaphor for a disease that plagued your people a generation ago. It's it, You're preying upon generational fears is what I'm saying. And if you can get something that's already uh, out there, Paul, in the ether, it's already in people's subconscious, and you go, hey, you know that scary thing that's in your subconscious? Well, it's a part of my story. Then it's an easy way to hook people, and horror movies do that. It's It's... You know, okay, uh, yeah. So I think it's part At of least Gorman noticed. That's where nice. it is exceptionally ridiculous, and I would agree with you 100. percent Is when it gets to he says to the cop Chenard, you know that murder mattress? Send it to my house. I, I'm it's going to be necessary <laughs> to help Kirsty remember. Like he gives them some sort of bullshit thing. That I this soiled, filthy mattress covered in blood, guts, covered piss, in blood, shit, yeah. and cum. Why is that with me in the first place? Yeah, is needs to be in my house. Yeah. So they they drop police evidence at this guy's palatial estate, and he. Oh, and he sure, put, Doc. Where do you want it? Which room? Yeah, and he and he puts it in his fucking. Here's the other thing that doesn't make any sense. Nobody believes this girl because her story is insane. I found this ancient puzzle box with all these rooms on it. And I accidentally opened it. Not even it, fucking Steve. Yeah. A gateway to hell opened up and there's these demons and they killed my family and my uncle came back from hell and all this sort of shit. When the police bring the soiled mattress to his house, they don't, Chenard's house, the police don't see any of the artifacts that are identical to what this girl has been describing that everybody thinks is insane. Nah. It's just nuts. It's just nuts to me. Anyway, I'm also very shaky of, I can make an argument of Frank came back through the combination of sex, blood, and magic. Magic with a K. Uh, I get that. I don't understand why taking a homeless person, mentally ill person, having them solve a puzzle box on a soiled mattress, I don't understand why that brings Julia back. Was he solving the puzzle box or was he cutting himself because he thought, he had bugs all over him and shit. Oh, and that's right. He did give him a razor. He did give him yeah. a razor. Yeah, you're right. And that's really disturbing, that scene. And then when her arms shoot out, that's that's really awesome. That's a great effect. And it's a great effect, but it movie. doesn't quite make sense to no. me. No. Well, welcome to the Hellraiser universe, Jason, because there's a lot that doesn't make sense moving forward in this franchise. And this is probably my number one issue with the film as we go. The law gets changed to suit whichever film that we're yeah. in. There's Correct. barely any continuity. That speaks volumes to the fact that, especially after this film, Bach is barely involved yeah. in it. He gets executive yeah. producer credit at, on most of the films because he created the idea. Yeah. yeah, But he's not involved at all creatively. 
and they just run in their own directions. And the further we go to a point, the more distilled and less effective these films become. Yeah. You know how I know that Clive Barker is a gay man and this the the book and these movies are written from the perspective of a very, very gay man? No, I would I'm fascinated. Please do tell. Because this movie is all about, well, I would say a gay man who was raised in Catholicism. Because this movie is and the first two especially, but this one just pretty much nails it right on the head. This movie is all about how female sexual desires are is the gate to hell. The vagina <laughs> and female sexual desire are the gates to hell. Clive Barker is, I think probably due to religious trauma, is deeply afraid of sexuality and deeply afraid of female sexuality. These movies are entirely, to me, these first two are about, and this one is this one especially, the that 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 female sexual desire is the path to hell. Every man is ruined by the Julia's lust in this movie. Yeah, it's true. Uh, and to the point of again, you mentioned before that Clive Barker wanted Julia to be the the through line yeah. of these films, and and yeah. I guess until this one, she is. But. Again, I'm fascinated by this. So, Chenard, as much as he's fascinated by this alternate dimension that I'm going to start calling hell because after this film, the film stopped it's, discerning yeah, it's between. It's hell. Yeah. It's hell. And, and everything that's related to it. When she comes out and she is effectively Frank from the first film, yeah. he doesn't bat a fucking eyelid, Jason. To suck he, her skinless, bloody fingers. He, oh, God. You know what the most, yeah, that scene and the scene after he finishes bandaging her, and of course, you know, her lips are kind of just exposed because yeah, you know, she's got yeah. to talk and everything else. They kiss and he comes away and there's blood. I'm like, oh my God. What are you doing, fella? Red what? wings, buddy. Oh, he got his red wings. That, oh, that bothered me. I have to say that bothered me more than just about anything else in this entire franchise. There's but, some disturbing oh, shit. Oh, yeah, there is. But a man whose mouth is covered in blood after engaging with a woman who's bloody, but yet still sexually desirous. Like, there's there's obvious metaphors there, Paul. Do I have to spell yes. it out for you? No, you don't need to. And <laughs> you're probably speaking a little bit to things that I don't want to go into. So, yeah. <laughs> I think what's interesting about this movie is we do get a lot of imagery. We do get expansion of the lore. But I think the ambition of this film outmatches its budget and its director's oh, ability sure. because I am way less certain about what the abstract oddities of this film mean and what meaning they're trying to impress upon me. With Clive Barker's original film, I was, I was mostly able to connect the dots and go, okay, I get it. That weird image equals this subconsciously or consciously. With this movie, it's like it got a lot of we just got a lot of weird fucking images of the time lapse photography of flowers budding, which definitely usually has sort of vaginal female arousal, yep. you know, and they're red, and so it's like okay, I get it, like the idea of like female arousal and the vagina opening for sex, and then there's the blood and the connection between. Maybe this is the one where we there's further implications that her mom died. I think it's this one where her mom died giving birth. The idea of the birth canal is also a place of 
you know, where men go and there's transformation and the seed goes into the thing and it becomes something else and the birth of a child and Chenard ends up getting born in the womb of Leviathan. Yeah. And there's Leviathan's penis comes and fills him full of demon sperm and goes down his throat and all this sort of like, I get all of that, but it's just, it's just kind of, it's just not as well done this is not as well of a directed of a film which is weird because no. the first one is is a first time filmmaker well this is only a second time filmmaker tony randall only made defcon 4 before this oh, okay. movie, which is not a All right. not a bad from my vague vague memory i watched it once back in the 80s not a bad uh sort of post-apocalyptic movie or apocalyptic movie yeah but he's gone on record as saying he was out of his depth in this movie and he felt very, very unable to live up to the expectations that the first film had made and he had to be reassured a lot by the producers and by Clive Barker himself and by the actors. So Doug Bradley was in his ear a lot saying, hey, you know, you know you've got this, it's okay. And that kind of shows because yes, as it much does. as it goes – we spent a lot more time, as per the title, Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, we spent a lot more time in hell yeah, the last and act. Of it's the almost like essentially a in hell. Salvador yeah. Dali painting itself. Yeah. The way that hell is sort of for de- sure. MC Escher, Salvador Dali. Yeah, yeah, depicted. And I, I really like that that aesthetic that they choose to go with here. I think it's very powerful and it works. But then we get I don't know. There's so many moments in the last forty minutes of this movie, thirty minutes of this movie, last act of this film, where I I sat scratching my head. So many, so many bits and pieces. Well, there's a lot of it that it, it, there's a lot of stuff that's done that I feel like either should have been separated out into its own set pieces. I'll give an example. We're, but when we are bouncing back and Please. forth between the asylum and hell and hell and the asylum a couple of times, one of the times that they come out of hell and go back into the asylum, all of the patients on the ward, they all are all like in a, one giant ward in beds, almost like a tree. They've all got lament configurations and they're all and, dead. And chains all different coming out of every yep. way. Yeah, and the hooks and the chains. Yep. Yeah. So did Chenard give each and every one of them puzzle boxes? Because she's like, she he gave them all the puzzle box. To, and like the idea is like they're going to open this giant portal on Earth and Leviathan's going to come through and remake the entire world. Honestly, that idea is way fucking scarier. The idea of idea of these people yeah. who don't know what they're doing who's their uh, their preoccupation their their obsessive nature is being used to try to open up so many different boxes to hell it's kind of terrifying because even if they're that opens not the question of go ahead sorry to, to interrupt you my apologies that opens the question of what's chenard's endgame this is before he's been turned into a cinnabite it makes no sense why why would you want hell to come to earth and destroy everything what what's what what do you achieve out of this that's what i mean that only like it's it's terrifying imagery and not terrifying imagery it's okay imagery with a terrifying thought but it feels half-baked and it's just a part of this other thing and by then he shows up and then we see him as the doctor and i'm sorry but the chenard cenobite is corny as fuck every line is he got a fuck why yeah. has he got a tentacle on his head that, that, well, that controls him and moves him through everything? Else? That's yeah. Leviathan. Okay, so he's got a direct conduit to Leviathan. Correct. He's tethered uh, look, from we're Leviathan's gonna spend, We're not going to spend 50 penis. minutes on each of these films. We're right, not. Right. We're going to get shorter and shorter the further we go. Yeah. So he's tethered to it. So Julia yeah. pushes him in. Yes. And I don't. apparently that's what she was required to do. That's why she was, she was she sent brought, back from uh, hell to give him Chenard. To do 
to give Leviathan yes, Chinar uh, so Leviathan could have um, an avatar. That's Why? ridiculous, but okay. So Leviathan now has an avatar. Should it, surely yeah. there's easier ways of doing it than sending someone back from hell. But he then is presumably Leviathan's will, but then yes. he destroys all the Cenobites, yes. including Pinhead. Yes. And then at some point soon thereafter, Leviathan gets pissed off enough to rip the top of his head off. Yes. Uh, what? So that's None the, of that makes any sense to none me. None of it makes any sense. And here's why it's the big giant problem of this movie is that originally Julia was supposed to be the main antagonist. Somewhere in production, yep. she said, I will not be returning to these films. Yeah, because no, yeah, she realized. This one to be my last one. She realized that Pinhead was becoming more popular than her. Yes. And apparently she has so many acting gigs lined up that she went, fuck this, and off she went to other things. Yes. Um, I think we all we all realized that <laughs> Julia, Claire Higgins, yeah. who got top billing in this movie, went on to the heady heights of films such as Small Faces, Bee Monkey, The House of Mirth, Stage Beauty, and The Libertine. Yes. She did not want to continue with the series. So they had to rewrite the script as the movie was in production, as they were shooting it to make her less of a central figure, even though the entire thing is built around her. So what you're left with is there is no clear antagonist was Chenard being played. Cause it, the way it feels is that Julia was just playing him the whole time, just like Frank played her. And then she's just going to like basically soul for soul. Like you let me out of hell and I'll give you a replacement. And she's going to feed him to Leviathan. And then he's going to be made into a Cenobite. And like, you're like, she literally tells him like, this is what you wanted. Remember? Like you wanted to know what was on the other side. This is it. You wanted to be immortal. This is it. Here you go. You, you could become one with Leviathan but, now. I did but, like the piano wires. Yeah. I did like the sort of squealy thing that attached to his face and all that yeah. stuff. And probably, as you said, this, the Leviathan semen into him. Yeah. But after that, it all goes downhill. And his well, that, dialogue's well, corny point, and ridiculous. Right? Yes. And, yeah. And then we also, we have this, this, this character who's catching fire with no pun intended with pinhead. And so do we want to make him an antihero kind of, and that's where they kind of end up Almost. going by the end of this movie. Well, they do. Cause yeah. he tries to save Kirsty. Where the, basic, basically what we have to do is we've got to have a double turn where Leviathan betrays the Cenobites. So the Cenobites stop trying to kill humans long enough for Kirsty to remind them that they themselves are human to try to use the powers that they have as human beings to fight the, um, to remember their humanity, to fight Leviathan. And the, and then, but where the fuck do you go from there? If you're going to, if you know you're already going to do a third one, where do you go from there? And then, then it's, then, uh, Chinar gets himself stuck trying to get to Tiffany and Leviathan cares so little about him. I don't think he's trying to kill him. He's just stuck. You don't? Okay. No, he's stuck. He's his daggers are he's stuck so worried in the ground. About, he's so worried about Tiffany. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, and he's like he's literally physically stuck in the ground in hell. Leviathan's like trying to pull him away to go do something else and say, ah, fuck it, just rips its head off. Because it's just a creation. It's, it's just an avatar. Just a machine, really, to it. Uh, yeah, look, I agree with that part. I well, what you're left like with is Leviathan no was angry enough at Chenard that yeah. that was quite happy to tear him to pieces because he wasn't doing his job. Yes. That's uh, yeah. The the problem though is then you're left with Julia sucked down a portal to hell, hell's hell, I guess. Lost lost her skin. The Cenobites are uh I want to get back to what happens to Cenobites because I think that's the most interesting thing in this whole movie. Um Cenobites Which doesn't are follow through, but anyway. basically dispatched. Yes, it doesn't follow through. Cenobites are dispatched. 
Kirsty and Tiffany are trying to escape. Kirsty assumes her identity, fucks up with Chenard. <laughs> Once again, I'm going to put someone else's skin over my yeah, face. It will look work just like perfectly. Chenard yeah. gets uh, ripped to shreds. Half decapitated. Yep. Tiffany gets the box and she's obsessed with puzzles since she watched Chenard kill her mom, I guess. Well, actually, yep. before that, she was already obsessed with puzzles and her mom was like, can you help my daughter? And so then he was so fascinated by her because of his obsession with the puzzle box. He wanted her for himself. And so he killed her mom in front of her and she hasn't spoken since. And it is kind of funny that her first word is when she's like, shit. And of course, he just looks at her. <laughs> so she can speak. That's kind of funny. And then, but the problem is if Leviathan is the ultimate big bad, if it's not Julia, if it's not the Cenobites, if it's not Chenard as the doctor Cenobite, if Leviathan is the ultimate bad of this movie, the ultimate antagonist, we have no idea what it wants. We have no idea what its will is. We have no idea. It goes Correct. from being this sort of yeah. amoral figure of another dimension to a demonic figure that wants to take over planet Earth for some reason. To do what? Make Earth hell? I don't know. And then it's the 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 Leviathan itself is just sort of a black light beacon coming out of a box configuration, like the visual conceptual, the conceptualization of what Leviathan is, is inherently uninteresting. It's not a, it's not some new revelation within the hell dimension. It's just the puzzle box itself, just on a giant yeah. scale yep. with a black searchlight coming out of it. Like, um, Mordor, like, uh, Sauron, <laughs> Saruman, Sauron. That's not bad at all. Sauron. Yep. Yeah. So, but it would almost be, it would be better if it was like an evil eye of darkness searching hell. And, you know, like the fact that it's just sort of the box morphing shape in a bad matte painting and a bad composite shot and a bad composite shot of a MC Escher painting. It's just kind of fucking lame. It's just lame. Yeah. Look, I agree. My <sighs> memory of watching hellbound how was it too as a young much younger person we're talking 15 yeah. 16 years old i like this movie so much more because it's so simple comparatively to the first one yes, that yes. there's not yeah. so much going on it's a lot more straightforward and as much as i'm about to use this to to defend if you will my score for this movie and oh, i God. know that this defense will not extend beyond <laughs> this film i Watching this one back, it just has so many holes in the last half of the film. I think the first half of the film follows on well. It does. And it, it, it's a, it, I a think sequel it's a, that picks up immediately after the first. Yep. And it fills in continuity and with your, the first film. Yeah. Your explanation of Julia just deciding at some point during production, I'm out. Claire Higgins. Is that her name? Claire Higgins? Yeah, yeah. I'm out. Thank you very much. Oh, shit. We need to rewrite this now because the next film can't be what we had planned it to be definitely feels like that, that makes so much sense to yeah. the end product that we get here which i still think has some good moments but like you say when tiffany solves the puzzle box that final time and closes all the gates to hell and all these uh, shitty blue electric lights are pulsing around and through the corridors and not hitting any of them or whatever what's that mean but it every just, it just doesn't Every so many frames, Sorry? one of them's a skull face that comes at the yes. camera. Yeah. Ooh, scary. My my point, it just doesn't have any weight or any substance to it. And it just feels, a, it feels quite lame, dare I say. Yes, it's lame. And it really, it really undermines the 
the, what the film's going for, the pathos at this point, but nothing shits me more than when Kirsty dons the fucking Julia skin and just looks just like Julia. Get fucked. That's even stupider than Frank wearing Larry's skin and it looking like yeah. him. Yep. It's so stupid and it just took me completely out of the movie and it lost me that point. By the way, also really important to emphasize, Kirsty wants to find her dad and bring him back from hell. Yes. Not possible. Can't happen. Never see Larry. Well, here's another again. question. Why is Larry in hell though? What did he do? He's yeah, a what did he do? It is a hundred percent excellent yep. question. But yet Frank can just summon her, even though he's been out and back to like how is he a model prisoner that can summon anyone to him in prison and have another go at her? Well, that's stupid yeah, we, as we, fuck. We sort of missed the subplot, which is Kirsty's um Kirsty's motivation to go through the gate of hell and go into this other dimension is He's having visions of who she believes is her skin father saying, help me, I am in hell, which is striking imagery. Help me, I am in hell is very, very striking imagery. But come to find out, it's Uncle Frank again. And I do like the idea that his personal hell is these these beds that like a mortuary slabs that come out of stone with all these writhing women who are like, oh, Frank, come and take me, Frank. Oh, I'm so ready for you, Frank. And then when he goes to fuck them, there's nothing there. They They slide away. (laughs) They slide away or they rip the sheet off and it disappears. It doesn't make sense that she could then take a sheet and light it on fire in hell and then burn his human flesh in hell. He's like, not my skin, not my skin. It's like, what skin? Yeah, that's the other thing is like, okay, if you're going to use hell language and soul language and embodied flesh and and then there's another one that's really going to do it flesh and soul and innocence and this and that and whatever are they alive or are they dead if you're in the hell dimension if you can physically because kirsty and tiffany aren't dead if they can physically go there in their corporeal essence and julia is there resurrected so you can apparently be there in physical again corporeal space is frank there in corporeal space because we watched him get torn apart that's my point. What, Frank what is a version bad, of Frank is there? Bad inmate. Yes, right. he's a bad inmate. And even if he, if we accept all of that, he can have another go at this. All right. Why is Frank allowed to do this shit? But Larry, if he is Correct. even in there, right? We never hear from ever again in this series. The, that's the thing. Doesn't make sense. And if you wanted to say, okay, well, it was all sort of him fucking with her, and Larry isn't really in hell. It's Uncle Frank again fucking with her. But Pinhead is like, it's impossible. He's in his own hell, child. Yes. And you could assume. He says that. Yeah, maybe Pinhead is lying to her. But to what maybe, end? Maybe, but. Why, why? I think the better reveal uh, yeah, would be. agree. The better reveal would be is that Larry, if there is a. Larry's not in hell. Well, and later film, one later film will suggest there is a heaven. So. Yeah. Larry is not in hell. And uh, she didn't fucking. She is traumatized. So she assumes that. Frank pulled her father to hell or whatever, but he's not really in hell, but this isn't supposed to be the afterlife. And even so, even by two that Barker is involved with and wrote a lot of the basis of, we're already getting it confused with Christian ideas yeah. of heaven and hell. And we've already lost it. Yeah. We've already, we've already lost, lost it. the plot. Are, are these souls? Ill, like, doesn't yeah. it, are these souls? Are the, are these bodies? What, what, how, what is, how does this dimension fucking work? And that's the biggest problem I have with this movie is the rules don't make any sense. And Leviathan is an abstract idea that is later personified without persona. It's just it. 
it's we give it a name and we give it motivation, but it's never it's not a person. It's not an, it's not even an entity. It's an abstract symbol in the fucking sky. And that's not scary. So the whole Great. ending of this really, I think, shits the bed. And the only thing that's memorable to me from this entire fucking movie is we when we see the Cenobites get deconstructed because the doctor, a.k.a. Chenard, has the power of, of Leviathan in his fingertips. When they die, when they die. Which doesn't make sense. How does human. the fucking Cenobite die? But they do. When mm-hmm. their Cenobite mm-hmm. nature is deconstructed, their human nature when is revealed. Cenobite tizzed when they're when they're beaten on their they're, no, yeah they're on. deconverted <laughs> they're deconverted from cinnabites uh the chat the 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 butterball obviously is a gluttonous man and the the female cinnabite is just some lady i don't know what her sin was but when chatterer <laughs> is deconverted it's just a child it's just a boy and that yeah, is that was so fucked up. Yeah. Great. That has stuck with me since I saw this movie originally because we presume that children are innocent. So we are we to presume this child found the configuration? Yeah. And and solved it and, and solved it and was therefore earned the was to to, to be uh, I assume if he's the chatterer. So he he talked to much. He bit people. Or he, or he oh, talked to yeah, him. That makes much. more sense. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. He was just a chatty kid. Kid, But the idea yeah. that like a, a kid who runs at the mouth, who talks too much, that's enough of a I was that kid. Punishment. I don't want to wind up like that. No. I know it's hard to believe talking with Jason here, but yes, it's true. I don't think any of them, I don't think any of them would have wanted to end up like that. I don't no, think no, Doug no, Bradley knew what he was, his explanation eventually. Elliot. Elliot Spencer yep. is like, I'd seen a lot of crazy shit in the Second World War. And I was first just. First, is it First World War? Maybe World it is War? the First World War, yeah. And mm-hmm. I think it is the First World War. And he's like, I didn't want, I was lost. I was lost in my mind, the loss of my humanity, and was looking for anything to feel again. And I heard about this box and I opened it, and then he's pinheadified. And the whole concept of this film, if I, or this series that works yeah. for me, is this idea that. You pursue the limits of pleasure, which borders on pain. Yeah. So far that you lose your soul in the pursuit of that. So that's, that's definitely the metaphor the lament, for sure. That's the lament configuration that works for me. So the like you say, the idea that a child, it's not possible. That kid, what is he, nine, ten years yeah. old? He can't. He has no concept of it. So that changes the game at one level. But we never really follow through on that. We never see that ever again. So I think that's a genius moment that should yes. have been capitalized on in subsequent films. I think what that idea, that idea belies is the idea that it isn't always the pursuit of pleasure. It's the pursuit of something. Mm. And that it, it, it's like a monkey's paw situation, which is like it's, your, your, it's a curiosity. There's an in, some insatiable desire for something, not necessarily pleasure, that drives you to opening this literal Pandora's box. And you, you, with the promise of you're going to get your desires fulfilled, but the cosmic dark joke of it all is that the version of the box's way of fulfilling your desire is through indefinite eternal torture. Yeah, that's, that is more interesting. The idea, maybe he wanted someone brought back or Correct. something that he, 
Correct. You know, something along those lines and that we don't care, we don't we don't discern between innocent and, and corrupt. Correct. That is, and I guess again I wish they had played on that more in subsequent films, but uh, I, well we'll eventually get to the reboot only- and I definitely feel like that's more oh, of a okay. direction well, that yeah. it's going. So yeah. Yeah. Is is we'll we'll eventually get there. Um this one to me is uh boy is a steep decline from the first film six out of ten it's my number two <laughs> i also gave it six out of ten jason it's my number three of the week oh fuck you i knew it fuck you man <laughs> well we're gonna get to it the first u.s production and the first dimension Woo! films courtesy of harvey weinstein paul's Let's favorite win. 1992's <laughs> hellraiser 3 Hell on Earth, which has a 40% on Rotten Tomatoes, and that's too damn high. Low. In Hellraiser 1, Clive Barker showed you his vision of a private hell. In Hellraiser 2, he took you on a journey inside the inferno. The terror returns in mankind's final confrontation with evil. Jesus Christ! Not quite. And this time, it's going to be hell on earth. Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth. Coming this May to video stores everywhere. Hellraiser 3 was directed by Anthony Hickox, which was most famous for Waxwork and Waxworks 2. Shout out Lindsay Washburn. We're eventually going to do the two Waxworks. Yes. Screenplay Screenplay by Peter Atkins. Story by Peter Atkins and Tony Randall. It's a triumph return of Terry Farrell. Uh, last scene in Bonfire Ooh. of the Vanities. This film was released, clock this date, Paul, September the 11th, 1992. Ooh. Nine years before the world would change, Ooh. at least here. Yeah. Uh, on another undisclosed budget, this one made $12.5 million. So these movies just kind of keep making around the $12, 15000000 million. Just enough that we get another one. Just enough to get another one. Newly divorced Pinhead has come to the big city to make new friends, experience new flesh, and get his groove back. Look out, boys. <laughs> you know what I've just realized? Where were we going to do best kills? Nah, fuck them. <laughs> it's all indistinguishable. It's all goo. I don't care. All right. All right. Um, well, I don't have a one sentence synopsis for this film other than this. It's time for Pinhead to hit the club scene. Yeah. Paul, this movie. Okay. <laughs> this movie is has US upped production value, but it loses the weird soft glow of the mostly British production, which gave those movies a very otherworldly and odd quality. And so instead, this movie looks like any other fucking leprechaun. This looks like Leprechaun 3 Wrong. or 4. There are explosions this like, in this movie. No, this looks like Tales from the Hood. This looks like any low-budget 90s explosions in this movie. dimension film horror movie. 
This is this is as bad as the curse of Michael Myers. Any semblance Whoa. of art house visuals Whoa. is gone in exchange for secondhand Freddy Krueger versions of Pinhead and the Cenobites. <laughs> All the oddities of fetishistic lust are replaced by one-liners and goofy pun-related deaths. Even yes. the daddy fake-out in this movie is a ripoff of Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors. Yes. She's got a dead dad who fought in Vietnam, and he died, and she misses her daddy, but she's a television reporter, and she saw something with the puzzle box, but Pinhead's in a completely different fucking statue than the one he was at the end of Hellraiser 2. Um, but Hell, the Pinhead identity has been separated from the Elliot Spencer identity. I did wonder that. Is that meant to be the same yeah, statue thing from the number two? Yes, but it's not. Um uh, the, the, the Cenobites he ends up creating are so fucking lame. There's a bartender. Some of them are. Some are cool. There's a bartender that spits. For, we have we have so far gone beyond the abstract art house stuff of. Clive but they're not Parker. Cenobites, Jason. They are pseudo Cenobites because they weren't made in the Leviathan machine. And he even says like these are not up to the level of yep. my previous. He acknowledges partners. that made me laugh so yes. hard. <laughs> but the idea here now is that he. The, the evil of Pinhead, which Pinhead was never evil. It was just a thing. But the the Leviathan creation is separated from the Elliot Spencer human consciousness. Elliot Spencer's in limbo thanks to Kirsty and the battle with Leviathan. And the Leviathan Pinhead creation is in a fucking statue and then eventually gets loose on Earth and is going around like Freddy Krueger on, on a <laughs> tiny little town set supposed to be Los Angeles and he's going around, things are exploding, he's desecrating churches, and all it is is quips and one-liners, and every, yep. it's like you're, you're, you become the thing of your sin. It's like, just like Freddy Krueger, there's one, is we introduce these characters, they all, instead of having one fear, they all have one sin. You got a bartender who likes to serve drinks, flaming, fiery drinks, and so what does he become? He becomes a Cenobite, a pseudo Cenobite with a fucking cocktail shaker and he blows fire. The cam, yep. the, the TV camera no, operator. The worst ones is, oh, no, no, hold on, fun. hold on. I'm getting there. The TV camera <laughs> operator ends up having, he's so obsessed with getting the scoop and getting the story. That he ends up having a camera shoved into his. Are you ready head. for your close up? Are, are you ready for your close up, Terry? Or whatever the fucker name is. And then he ends up punching a hole through Jerry. somebody's head. Be be uh, with the camera when he does a sh snap focus, and then that's awesome. And of course, the absolute worst one is the DJ. Ends oh up yeah, he's the shittest. Head ends up becoming a fucking CD player, a CD deck that spits out CDs that Dark Angel style can cut your fucking head off. And then the <laughs> girl, the girl from Becker. And the not yes. for Becker, Terry's for Becker, but the girl from fucking the original Spin City, the first seven episodes of Spin City, the not Carla Gugina, the Carla Gugina wannabe. Yeah, Paula Marshall movie. playing Terry. Joey is the main character. Yeah, Terry, yeah. Terry is Joey. Yeah. Uh, Paula plays Terry. Fucked up. But yep, that's the it. Terry character, not the Terry actress, the Terry character yep. is ends up willfully sacrificing herself to become a Cenobite so she can live all of her dreams. I could dream Not that we now. see it. I could dream Not that we now. see it. I could dream now, Joey. What the fuck does that She's mean? She's shit. And, her and she just butts out cigarettes. Is that she has a fucking hole in her neck that she smokes cigarettes out of. And she what? Yeah. Burns she butts people? About. She burns people with her cigarettes? That's her Cenobite power? 
We're, we're, we're three movies in and we've hit the bottom of the barrel already. This is the Freddy's mm. dead. This is the Freddy's dead. No, no, hold dead on. The, no. Hold the fuck on. This you is a this theatrically is the the released oh my film. God. I know. This is I saw this shit. movie in the theaters. Oh, fuck I saw it in the theaters. This I sucks. I did. Uh, I disagree for many, many reasons. <laughs> Terry Farrell is and we would- horrible in this movie. Her acting is atrocious. She flat out calls him Pinhead in this movie. She uses a fan <laughs> name and that's makes it That's not her canon. problem. That's the writer's name. Yep. That's the writer's problem, not hers. But look, I don't disagree in much of anything you said, except I think there are some moments in this movie that really work. I think that- JP Munro is a great villain who got killed off way too early in the film. He's such a douche. He's such the club a piece owner of shit. Yeah. Who's and feeding, when he dies, with, feeding he gets, people to the statue. Well, he feels one one person to it, incidentally yeah. almost. And then he himself gets fed to it and then gets the uh the, the pistons through the head because it's better than sex, baby. I loved his Why does his he get pistons in the head? Just because he fucks, he gets pistons in the head. What's the connection? Yeah, yeah. That's it. That's the connection. That's all a you need. Thrusting what motion, you a thrusting motion. Let me tell you something. If this, these are the best ideas that Pinhead can come up with, then Leviathan should have been in control. He's in a well. box. It, we should have been. He's now out of it. That's, that's the way this, this, this film progresses. This is what happens when an assistant manager gets promoted to manager and you realize <laughs> it's the Peter principle. Pinhead got promoted after the destruction of Leviathan, and this, this, this place is shit. Hell has gone to shit under the management of Pinhead. This guy's un, this, an untalented, unimaginative fuck. Pinhead, this movie reduces Pinhead <laughs> to being an uncreative studio executive. He's Harvey Still Weinstein. Doug Bradley. He's Harvey he Weinstein. Oh, oh, hey, stop it. Stop it now. That's actually, Harvey it. Weinstein was actually more creative and better script whoa. ideas than this fucking Pinhead. This, this sucks. Jason just swinging for the fences. And meanwhile, I will take the considered middle ground, which is to say this film entertained the fuck out of me. I think that is the baffling more Pinhead, to me. The more Pinhead in this movie, this is one of those films which it's very hard to defend. Everything you've said other than shitting on Doug Bradley for his performance because he's still great in this movie. He still has the voice. I didn't shit on his movies. performance. I'm shitting on the character of Pinhead. This fuck, version fuck, of Pinhead fine. is Freddy Krueger light. It's all puns. It's all fucking puns. He's doing Freddy Krueger. He's doing Freddy Krueger. Yes. What and he's this is doing. the early 90s and they're emulating what's going at the time and I... At this point, this film, I still Freddy, Freddy, had, Freddy was dead by this point. Uh, even, Freddy, this one? even Freddy had run his course. Freddy, well, what better way to resurrect Freddy? <laughs> than as fucking Pinhead? Everything I that was interesting f- about this series has been chucked in the trash can. There's no more abstract ideas. There's no more interdimensional nope. focus. There's no more theories nope. of, of, of Guess pain Because hell's coming to Earth. Oh, man. It's just bad. I like the direction. Bad I'm glad it didn't continue on this run, although I would la- rather have had seven more films like this than the next seven that we get. But anyway, we're getting, we're getting ahead of ourselves. I love that back and forth between we get more of Elliot, who now is no longer in a limbo somewhere. He exists, well, as you said, he exists and he's trying to undo what he's become in terms no, of people. No, no, I, like, no, that, I, I like the idea of it, Paul, but where does he say he exists? I don't know. Where does he say? I can't remember. He says he exists in the world of dreams, the world of dreams and nightmares, ah. which is which is limbo, which is the realm between heaven Freddy and Freddy Krueger. 
He's so Elliot Spencer is the good guy trapped in Terry's traumatic dreams, and that opens oh, no, a window no, of her mind. He's trapped, he's trapped there. there. I think he's choosing. He's no, he oh, said he's, he's trapped, trapped there. there. Why would it just be in her mind? Okay, that's fine. Well, he's trapped that's in fine. the no. He's trapped in the realm of dreams. The, the realm. trauma okay. of Where her he dream can her there. opened yep. a window for that he could be able to get through to communicate with her after she saw the horrific death. And she's, if you remember, she's clipped by the hook. In the first one. Yeah. No, no, no. Yes, that's right. At the right. beginning of the movie, the, she the sees movie the guy ripped all the chains are coming the out of the. Yes, I love that. Uh, in the in the yeah, that's great. I love that. So that she scene. gets fantastic. scraped by the hook yep. as, as it it's going past. down the hallway, yep. and that is yep. enough uh, to make a give her connection between the lament configuration, so that Elliot can come through from limbo through the window of her mind, and it, and again. This all sounds like horse shit because it is. And the movie explains it over and over and over again. And then she realizes, oh, you came through the window of my mind and you got the lament configuration. Because eventually Pinhead, who she thinks she's destroyed, is just in her head. And they're doing this final battle in her head between the human side of Pinhead and the Leviathan side of Pinhead. And it's all in this woman's mind. I don't give a fuck about this woman in her mind. I don't care. Oh, I like Terry Farrell. No, fuck I was off. I over by her from being on Beckett. <laughs> it was Bevel 5, she was. Um, did you realize that the bartender, Cenobite, was the writer of this film, Peter Atkins? <laughs> he's the, right, he he's the writer of the, the last one, too, and they're both shit. Stupid, Paul. I cannot believe it. I this is had the stupidest, so much fun. This is the stupidest fucking movie we've seen in any of these horses. This is the fourth year. Fourth year. This is the worst this. of the four of the four years. This is one of the worst. You have shit on every Nightmare on Elm Street that was like this. You shit on every Friday the 13th was like this. You shit on every Halloween that's like There's this. There's no Friday the 13th is like this. Yes, There's no there Halloween is. is like this. Yes, there is. This is Jason Takes Manhattan. No. Yes, it is. There's no production value to Jason Takes Manhattan. There's there's ridiculous. At least in this film, the it's production value is Vancouver, night. my friend. Three hundred and fifty people die, or two hundred and sixty people die in that nightclub. That- there's no one else to spill out into the streets. So there's just a mass, the massive amount of death and gore. Which let's talk about that nightclub and I scene. Love at more one point, Doug Bradley. No, no, fuck off. Uh, at one point, when Pinhead <laughs> is killing the people in this club. A CGI ice cube, a CGI fucking ice cube levitates out of a woman's glass, turns into an ice dagger, Batman and Robin style, and stabs the woman's face. Doesn't it turn into Pinhead first and then turn? Yes. This is Wishmaster. This is Wishmaster level filmmaking. You're turning Pinhead into a bad Freddy Krueger, into a bad Wishmaster. (laughs) And you're sitting here and you're going, yeah, this this is the best one. This is the best Hellraiser. This is the funnest one. This is the most enjoyment I had. It's not. You are out of your fucking mind, Paul. I know you're soused, but this is ridiculous. I did my rankings well before tonight. I was so looking forward to this moment, Jason. I was so happy. I knew I was going to distress slash piss you off so much. You when gave you me said so Hellraiser. much. You've given when me you so said much shit for ghoulies. movies way better than this. <laughs> you gave Sunset <laughs> Boulevard two and a half stars. You're sitting here and film. tell me Hellraiser three Hell on Earth <laughs> is 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 the is going on the fucking yep. guest list. Eat a, bag of last dicks. Eat a bag of dicks. Eat a bag of dicks. What I the fuck? P- 
soundboard hooked up here right now. <laughs> this is great. This is one of the greatest moments in the history of binge movies. I broke you I've way too fucking far. Jason. I, no, no, I think I've I broke broken Jason right here. Way too far <laughs> if you're sitting here defending this movie. If you would have said this is two, three, fine. Because there is added production value in this, that, whatever. This is yes, such that's the other hokey, thing. This one looks the best. This is such hokey, corny dog shit. I cannot believe that you would say this is the best Hellraiser. No, no. I, I have to say it's my favorite. Is it the best? Yeah, it will be the it's one that at the end that I say you should go out and watch. When you yeah, think it's going to be, be one preserved for all time. <laughs> of all the Hellraiser films, the one that should be preserved. Jason, is you and I both know that not one of these films has got any chance of making the vault. You, so you don't why know not because go you, with a bang? You don't know because do you know. don't know what else I is on the season. You don't know what else is in the season. I don't know what's on the season. Unless you are doing the 10 worst films of every other year <laughs> than the Hellraiser franchise, there's no chance. The worst <laughs> films of 93 and 2003 and 2013 and 2023. This film is making the list. Not making the list, sorry. Uh, the end point. No one's debating this one. No one's debating the first Hellraiser. You are debating it. You're on a show right now where you're supposed to be debating the merits of these fucking movies. I like the kills. I love more Pinhead. I think the way it, it as much as it's dodgy that this statue wants, but that we get like that gets explained. I like the characters. I'm really sad that Dream fucking what the hell uh, that Terry Dream of Cinnabite gets killed off camera. I wish she had lasted longer. I kind of got in with her plight. I like Doc saying into his phone, speak. That's his whole voicemail message. That's awesome. I think that's pretty funny for 1992 or three or whatever. The fuck I cannot was. believe this. I think this, I, I think one, this is nostalgia. This is the, this is the lowest Could effort be. pick. But I watched, I this watched is the it lowest again. effort pick you've ever made. It's not up against much. I gotta say, I coming expecting it to be two, this is Three, such the a same. half-hearted, lame defense for a half-hearted, lame movie. Oh, that's, that's hurtful. That's hurtful. I can only tell you what comes from my heart, Jason. And my heart says that this film is fun. It's frivolous. It's, it doesn't stand up to the first two in terms of the horror and the gore, but it stands up in terms of entertainment. If you want to see Pinhead kill hundreds of people, this is the that's movie for it? you. All, if you, don't all give you a can fuck, tell me is well, this movie's got a see, body count. It looks better. This and it looks Jeez better. It looks so much Christ. better. When there's explosions in the street, and she's running around and all that shit. And then they light the the police cars and the cops on fire. All that shit's shot really, really well. Even going back into the dream, that stuff is awesome. Okay, sure. When the girl gets sucked into the into the statue, that looks pretty fucking lame. The whole movie but is if lame. We're, if we're gonna get the- stuck on. If you get stuck on one effect looking lame, then um, unfortunately no, the whole I've got bad news Ice Pinhead is lame. CD <laughs> players in the face being killed by CDs is lame. The the, the, the nightclub, the nightclub with the Don't disagree, but baby laugh. on the wall in barbed wire is lame. The acting is lame. The deaths well, that, are that lame. Came straight out of the second one, the gore is lame. The statue is lame. Pinhead in this movie is lame. Disagree. Disagree. Doug Bradley is at the forefront of this film, and I'm, it's great to see him in, in and out of makeup. The only good idea this movie has is the idea of the juxtaposition between Elliot Spencer and Pinhead, and it is so wasted in just an absolute garbage movie. I just cannot believe it. This movie is a five out of ten. It is number four for the week. Oh, four. It's Jesus horrible. Christ. 
Yeah, I'm giving this a 7.2 out of 10. It's my number one of the week. I'm adding it to the guest list. I Not cannot, just a spy, Jason, though it might sound like it. I have absolutely never seen you take something less serious in your entire life. <laughs> well, let's move on to something that might stun you. 1996's Hellraiser Bloodline, the last theatrically released film in the Blood uh, Hellraiser series. Hard currently has a, as it fucking needs to believe. Currently has a 24% on Rotten Tomatoes. Centuries ago, a toy maker set out to build the perfect puzzle box. Now, centuries later, a scientist has unlocked its secret. Welcome to Oblivion. And the battle for the future of mankind is about to be fought across the boundaries of time. Hellraiser Bloodline was directed by Kevin Yeager. Uh, this, the so final, no, 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 hang no, on. Finish. Let me finish. The released film, the released print, he disavowed and asked for his name to be yep. taken off. So it's officially directed by Alan Smithy. But <laughs> How many films have you done on this show have been directed by Alan Smithy? It's this one. But the director's. Yeah! Work print is going to be finally released by Arrow when they do the first four films in 4K this year. So you'll finally be able bullshit to see. fucking like Second Life uh, graphics of this one. Is that is that going to have that in there? The scenes where it was meant to be. Holy I shit! I don't know. I haven't delved too much into what that box set's going to be, but that's kind of exciting. Uh, this one was written by Peter Atkins, the bartender Cenobite himself. <laughs> The Triumph Return of Adam Scott, last seen in Krampus. Triumph Return of Bruce Ramsey, last seen in Collateral Damage many years ago. Triumph Return of Kim Myers, last seen with Paul in A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. She played oh, the yes. girl who was dating the guy. Yeah, she who, did. Well, did she was that. Jesse's girlfriend. Jesse's beard, basically. Yep. Uh, yep. Triumph Return of Cortland Mead, last heard in A Bug's Life. If you don't know who that is, he's the most punchable of all 90s kid actors. This film was released March 8th, 1996, with <laughs> a budget of $4 million. It made only $9.3 million. A 22nd oh, century. God, it should have died here. <laughs> a 22nd century scientist recounts tales of ancestral lament from deep space. Yeah, this is Cloud Atlas for the Hellraiser generation. Okay, this is the last <laughs> film with Clive Barker's involvement. We have basically three stories that are told to us. Uh, one is Red Dwarf in 2127. Uh, the other is... In seven, How dare you, sir. <laughs> the other is in 1796. Then the kind of middle of it is 1996. 1996. And then it's yeah. wrapped around again with 2127. Now, in 2127, we get a space station set in a Critters 4 level or even Roger Corman level <laughs> worse, sort of worse. space station. Um, I The one thing I don't understand is every time a film franchise feels the need to go to space, what does it also feel the need to be try to be aliens? Every franchise that goes to space fills its crew out with characters who feel directly ripped off of James Cameron aliens. It's, it's, it's staggering to me. A sign of a it bad horror the, movie, Paul, in a bad franchise is when the story has a wraparound. If the, if a, especially a sequel. If the movie is a guy recounting another movie, then they didn't have enough story for a full movie. And or if, in this case, 
Go ahead. Not quite true. In this case, Kevin Yeager had been back and forth to the studio so many times and Peter Atkins eventually, both of them just disavows it. Well, well, then fuck you, we're done. We've had enough. You have asked us to make so many changes to this shit because the original script didn't even have Pinhead appearing until the 35, 40-minute mark of the film and the studio couldn't handle that. I said, no, 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 no. Has to, he has to come in earlier. He is the lifeblood of this series. And so they went, all right, eventually Kevin Yeager got his name removed. I can't remember who came in to direct the, the rest of it off the top of my head, but um, he said, he argued successfully, the finished product is less than 50% of me in here. So get my name off. I do not want a bar of this. And they had to, to acquiesce to his demand. So yeah, this one was troubled from the beginning to the end. In fact, Doug Bradley, Doug Bradley has said, this is the worst film he's ever been in. He said this is the worst production he's ever been involved with. Well, he's a liar. A kid who was in nine, well, he said the worst production he's ever yeah, been involved yeah. with. The end result might be might be different, but the kid in the film got chicken pox. There was a fire on set and delayed filming. Then there was a writer's strike or some kind of strike among all the uh, crew and they had to shut down filming again. He said it was an absolute fucking nightmare from beginning to end. And unfortunately, as much as I think there's a good film in here somewhere, uh, the end result shows it. Yes. Joe Chappelle. Joe Chappelle was the uh, the director who came in to finish the film and ended up shooting apparently more than 50% of it, but didn't want his name on it because he didn't shoot all of it. Well, we get added to the lore. It turns out this movie is really the origin story, not so much for Pinhead, but for the puzzle box. Uh, how did the lament configuration come mm-hmm. to puzzle form? There was a toy, na- toy maker named Mar- La Marchand, uh, a.k.a. in the future, Dr. Merchant is the descendant of this guy. And he has learned that through history, his bloodline has been connected to the building of the lament configuration into the puzzle box. And as the uh, colonial Marines of aliens uh, uh, take over this hijacked space station, try to figure out why Merchant has gone off his rocker. He tells them the story of the, creation of the puzzle box and we go on this long shaggy dog tail through it all um the bulk of this movie especially the first half takes place in 1796 that's the adam scott portion um the 1796 portion has i think very strong production design for a low budget movie i think it's lit very well it's lit very atmospherically i think mickey cottrell as um the Basically, the uh, Marquis de Sade. Marquis de Sade. It's basically yep. what he is. Is perfectly campy in a both fun, funny, and very creepy way. There's something very fucking cold, sociopathic, creepy about him. Um, I think Bruce Ramsey is actually pretty strong in this. Is both the future merchant and, to a lesser extent, Philippe. He's horrible in 96 stuff. Um, but the creation or the summoning of a demon and the giving of skin to that demon uh, in Angelique and then essentially kind of de facto maybe some of the origin of the hooks. The idea that they basically took a, a sex worker, they led her to this uh, mansion where this lord, this French Marquis de Sade sort of figure was doing S and M occult magic rituals 
and they strangle and murder her and then sever her flesh from her and then create this basically pit to hell and open this dimensional portal to hell and summon her by magic to become a demonic sex slave for their kink and just to get off of the idea that they control a being from hell you know he who summons the demon controls the demon all this sort of stuff it has to obey the magic and all this stuff uh i think it is way more interesting and way more creepy and gets back to the interdimensional occult roots of it all and then she makes this clandestine deal with um adam scott's character that essentially they kill the 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 main guy and as long as you don't get in hell's like i'll fuck you i'll be i'll be your dominatrix basically uh as Mm. for eternity as long as you don't get in hell's way the moment you get in hell's way and you and you uh get in the way of the will of hell our deal is broken and then i will kill you essentially all of that that storytelling the story the toy maker with the pregnant wife him realizing he's created, he didn't know what he was making, him realizing that he didn't create the world's perfect puzzle box, this very intricate, ornate, clock-like puzzle box. He's actually created something that could be used in a ritual for hell. His terror at that, him trying to stop it, him ultimately failing to stop it. I think it's so interesting. I 100%- Really? Yes. I thought it was (laughs) interesting. I thought it was disturbing. I thought it was creepy. I thought it was well acted enough for a low budget for what it is. And that was to me the most delighting in some of those scenes off of the pancake makeup and the face paint and the powdered wigs and, and just the, the, the implications of what they're doing, uh, getting back to the weird combination of filth and sex and the occult. I think it really harkens back to, it gives sort of the earthly side of this, dimensional fetishization that exists in these films and um i really liked all of that all of the 1996 stuff is terrible it's boring okay. it, it truly feels Don't like Wishmaster with that pot the idea of pinhead the idea that that hell has become more organized since the princess of hell angelique was taken away and so they've ordered they, this religious order has taken over hell the gash and that's what pinhead and his crew do they sort of rule it's become a more uh, uh austere sort of place less decadent and they just want they want a highway to earth they just want yeah. a big opening where they could, they don't have to wait for a puzzle box to, to summon they want they a perpetual want door yes at will yes, yes. the one good idea that the third movie had, which I do think gets explored here, is when Terry takes the lament configuration, or Paula, rather, Joey, rather. And Joey yep. takes the lament configuration and she throws it in the cement. And the last shot and of the movie... Into a, this building, yeah. The whole building has become the lament configuration. Yep. That was very interesting. And the idea that there's this bloodline and, and he's the architect, Merchant is the architect of that building, and it's his bloodline going back to the 17th, 18th century that initially opened the door to hell and all this sort of stuff. Like that is conceptually really interesting horror movie continuity kind of stuff. But the way, and even I can even conceptually get behind the idea of the space station being revealed 
to be a sort of anti-lament configuration that that he's intentionally got a pinhead off of Earth, summoned him to deep space, and is tricking the demon. And rather than being a box that opens darkness, this whole box becomes an anti-lament configuration that summons light and could obliterate the Cenobites once and for all and close the portal forever. I, re- I honestly really like it's kind of goofy, but I really like the idea that he's the whole time you think Merchant and this crew are trapped with the demon, but the the station itself was built as a trap. I I really like that idea. I really like that yeah. idea. If it's only just, it's strung the budget together, had have extended yeah. yes. yes to fit the idea. Yes, because when that does the whole change into the to its own version of the puzzle box, the lament configuration, it looks it looks worse than Command and Conquer, the first fucking game did on your PC, which was probably a few years before this. There's some of what I disagree with, and I think this film is shoddy from opening seeing the Kevin Yeager shot stuff is terrible. I think this looks like budget Tony Scott. There's so many close ups. It's hiding. It's seems as much as it can. Yes. You said yep. you like the lighting. It drove me insane how we had close up and canted close up of time and again of Adam Scott and uh Mickey Cottrell in that early scene. I just I could not get past how cheap and nasty this film looked. I couldn't get over the fact this was le- released cinematically. I was oh my God, if you saw this film and I did not, thank God, in the cinemas, I, I can only imagine the disappointment, the horror and not in a good way that you would have felt this is a horrendous looking movie and it made perfect sense to me that kevin yeager did not want his name on this film and that uh, joe chapelle or chapelle or whatever was content not to have his name there yeah. as well so I, I that part of it just I, I i did not like i did like the idea of let's explain how the lament configuration came to be let's end this supposedly with the last film potentially in the franchise in the way that it does what i don't understand and, and you need to explain this to me jason and maybe you got a better sense of this than i did i hope you did why is le Bichant or merchant whatever how come he is the author of this gateway to hell all he did was make a fucking puzzle box and then it was the marquis de sard or whatever his name was who infused it with the occult power why aren't we following his bloodline I, yes, I think that the idea is that he was given instructions on how to construct, I need this thing to do all these things. He was, it's like, um, almost like, uh, when you outsource the building of something, uh, like I'm trying to think of a movie, I think one of the Batman movies talks Sub- about this. subcontracting. Yeah. You subcontract every piece of it so that no one knows what they're making. And then you mm-hmm. bring it together all in house and you make it. I think the idea was that he sort of subcontracted this puzzle box and the the runes, he didn't know what those were. The the spell is in the box, essentially. And by the series of the cylinders and the mechanisms falling into place, it aligns the runes in such a way that allows this magic to work. Um, and yeah, I think that he yeah. he didn't realize he's making an a, 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 an occult object. No, he didn't. Clearly, yeah. he yeah. had no idea. He was yeah. completely blindsided by it and it cost him his life in the end. But I don't know. I just feel like the spirit of this is all wrong. If you're going to pick on someone whose bloodline is infused, yeah. Why this, would it curse? Why did it curse yeah. his bloodline that yes. he made this infernal yes. machine? Yeah, yeah. So I feel like that's a real problem with the script. 
the of course the effects. The effects are god awful in this movie. I've alluded to it already. It's it's hard to get past. I get it. They're reaching for the stars almost literally, but it's it's so so poor. And then yeah, like you said, the wraparound. We get to the end, and I, I was genuinely surprised that he lived, and so did the the one guard who kind yeah. of half came to believe him in terms of what he was doing. Good. That's nice that someone walked away from a Hellraiser film. That's very rare. I guess Joey did in the last film as well. And, and Kirsty has to this point as well. And Steve, of course, for the first film he's made. Yeah. As far as <laughs> <laughs> Let's not forget Steve. Steve's Steve. the only one who's probably gone off to live a normal life though. Yeah. He yeah. just walked away like, yeah, I did this crazy bitch once. Uh, oh, yeah. Sorry. Woman, woman once. But um, yeah, anyway, that, that did surprise me. I thought uh, the direct callback, like you said, everything tries to emulate aliens. I think this one was actually more like alien because there's a guy named Parker and he's an African-American gentleman yeah. and he gets killed. I'm like, yeah. well, that's not subtle. Why would you have to call him Parker? With Come on, chains. that's clearly Affleck Kodo. Amongst the chains. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. So uh, I just... Uh, this film didn't vibe for me. It was nowhere near as bad as I was anticipating though. I thought this was going to be no, I won't say that because that's a spoiler for future episodes of Binge yeah, Movies yeah, yeah, podcast. Yeah. But uh, this was probably better than I thought it was going to be, and I don't hate it. But and I, I wish the whole series had ended here. Can I just say that? Because then both this episode would be over, and we wouldn't have next week, and we, everyone will be better for it. Yes, I would. I agree <laughs> to both those sentiments. Look, I'm not saying this is a good entry. I, I'm, it's definitely a weaker entry into the series. Which is only we're only four movies in. It's already fucking weak. <laughs> But it is, it's at least attempting to do something different, expand the lore, bring some continuity together. And what it, what it's, what it's doing, which I think is in a, a more right headed place than the, even the second film is it's, if you're not, if, if we're not, if we don't have the creative imagination and the directorial skill or the budget to tell a very abstract story in an artistic way, to communicate horror and you need to tell a very human story. And so I think conceptually the idea of following this family and their connection to the Lemen configuration uh, and, and, and not necessarily the configuration itself, but the puzzle box that houses that configuration. Cause my, my understanding is like the configuration or the lament spell or whatever you want to call it is that's just occult dark magic shit it's just been in this instance, it's just been put into box form by a human being to get everything to align the way that it needs to. Um, that makes sense. Yep. I like that idea. Again, I don't think it destroys the lore of this movie. I think it adds something to it. It's just that the execution, the money, the talent, the ability, the time, the circumstances weren't there. And so the thing really kind of is just, it feels, it does, it feels duct taped together in a very kind of cheap way. But at least it was something different. We're three move. We're now four movies in. It was like okay. At least we're trying to do something different. I thought the idea okay. of going back and like the summoning of Angelique, getting away from Pinhead, was way more interesting. Way more interesting because at the end of the day, he just stands there and he says some puns and he does some stuff. And I don't it, know he says puns in this movie. He just says some. You know, he says some. The mystique is gone. Shit. The mystique is yeah, but gone. I still love. I love him. I just 
if there's a commonality to these films and my ratings of them, the more pinhead there is, the more I love it. So no, the less the better because do you need the mystique? You know, we're past that point now. Now I just want to see Doug Bradley chewing scenery and absolutely giving it to some fuckwits who don't understand what they've summoned. Well, I get well, I give this one a five point five out of ten. It's my number three. It's the third best of the week. I give it four out of ten. It's my fourth best of the week. All right, well, let's at least get we to agree th- on what's the worst of the week. <laughs> let's get to <laughs> the worst of the week and wrap this episode up so Paul can go to bed at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, really quickly. This will be the quickest one. Fuck me. How long have we been going? Good. It's Hellraiser 5, Inferno, 14%. All hell is about to break loose again. What do you want from me? And this time, a battle between good and evil has a familiar face. Welcome. To hell. Hellraiser Inferno. No! Hellraiser 5 was directed by Scott Derrickson. Yes, that's Scott Derrickson. Did you watch The Black Phone? Mm. Have you seen Insidious? Yep. It's him. Have you seen the what's the one with um jennifer carpenter uh the possession of emily rose or something like oh yeah that was just kind of his breakthrough yeah yeah Mm -hmm. uh this film was uh written by paul harris he directed sinister Sinister. Sinister it's sinister yes uh it's written by paul harris boardman this was released on home video by buena vista home entertainment that's right (laughs) what it is disney (laughs) yes it is it is the dubious return of my nemesis, James Remar. <laughs> Fuck <laughs> you, buddy. Craig Sheffer. I hate James Remar. Uh, Craig Sheffer, uh, I have oof. talked about before, but not in an official episode. We did a little feature presentation review of Voyage of the Rock Aliens, and he's, he's this one not even Nightbreed. Okay, no, uh, I don't like Nightbreed at all, at all. Nothing about it. Sorry. Damn. Sorry. Okay. Uh, it was, was released October 3rd. Uh, that's not true. I like the psychiatrist mask. That's kind of cool. Uh, October 3rd, 2000, uh, made $2 million on home video. A Coke How snorting. Fuck do we have another one after this? Uh, we got 10 more after this. We got a Coke snorting, whore loving cop <laughs> has to track down a missing child who keeps turning up in pieces before the killer <laughs> holding him hostage goes too far. Craig Sheffer slums it through the worst Hellraiser made to this point in time, but dear God, does it get worse from here? We'll stay tuned for next week. Has anyone seen Seven? What if it was Hellraiser, but it was Seven, but it was made for $5? What if, what if, That's it. That's what this movie is. What is $5. Very generous. The only thing I can say about this is that it feels and looks like a Saw movie before a Saw movie was ever written or produced. Yeah, that's this, a good point. This like is that. Saw yep. before Saw, and you're going, well, what does that have to do with Hellraiser? Fuck all is what it has to do with Hellraiser. This movie is absolute dreck. At some point, karate cowboys, karate cowboys, kick the piss out of Craig Schiffer. We have extended scene <sighs> of martial artists in full cowboy duster regalia, hats, chaps, and all. Kicking the shit out of Craig Schiffer. It is so clear from frame one 
that Schiffer's character of Detective Thorne is the bad guy and that he is already in hell and that he's being punished for his sins, that he is the quote-unquote engineer, that everything else is an exercise in obviousness. The twist of this movie is so stupid, I couldn't believe it. This feels like an extended episode of Masters of Horror from Showtime, not a Hellraiser movie. (laughs) Very generous of you to say that. Very generous. This is so unbelievably bad. I give it a two two out of ten. It's the worst of the week. Only two I give it. I don't know why I give it a two. I could give it a zero, but I know it's going to get worse from here. I know it's going to get worse from here. Uh, I gave it 2.2 out of 10. And... (laughs) This was I know we're rushing through this one because there's nothing to say about it. It's honestly, you've just said it at all. When you have to rely upon Craig Sheffer to be your your protagonist, and he's in a perpetual state of confusion as to what's going on, well, and he's bouncing I, around yeah. between scenes. Yeah. Craig Sheffer, there's a reason he stopped being an actor around about the time of this film because he was he was in a few films for about five or six or maybe seven or eight years. That's it. He disappeared off the face of the earth. A very good reason. He's yeah. not a very good actor. No. The only good thing about this film is there are some. It looks better than the last film did. Scott Derrickson has sort a of. reasonable eye with some of the shots. You can see the burgeoning director he will become yes. in this movie. But yes. Jesus, he with with apologies for the the religious reference there. He is cutting his teeth here in such a severely painful way yeah the best shot of the whole film arguably is when we see joe whatever he's thorn whatever his name is get pulled apart and then it goes through the back of his head as he's pulled apart and shows his his evil side his cenobite side standing there you know kind of ah, that that part like okay there's some there's some visual flair to it but otherwise this is an absolute fucking mess of a script it's one of the worst movies I've seen, certainly this year, and certainly by far the worst film in this series we've seen to this point. It is complete garbage, and it extends out a. You said it's a Masters of Horror. Uh, it's not even a. It's not even a Twilight Zone twenty-minute feature. Uh, sorry, episode into an eighty-five-minute feature film, and it fucking blows. Well, you see, Paul, the only thing worse than bad metaphors are bad metaphors that are explained by Pinhead for the last twenty minutes. It turns out the child. <laughs> he did. He not even twenty minutes. Not even twenty minutes. He was on that set for I reckon two days. Doug it Bradley, turns out paid the missing child is twenty five thousand dollars. Missing innocence, and the reason why your innocence oh, is missing is because it's being tortured. That's by why your I put flesh. a finger everywhere. That's why fingers are everywhere oh, because a- your innocence is being lost piece by piece. And if you lose one more piece of your innocence, then you're going to be in hell forever. But in fact, you're already in hell forever, and this is your hell, and you're being tortured. By the loss of your innocence over and over again and the death of that prostitute and all these things and you're going to live your suicide over and over again and that's the twist and I'm going to be your psychologist and Pinhead's a psychologist. What gives a shit But any of this? Long time claim was that this script was not originally part of the Hellraiser series and was repurposed to be a Hellraiser sequel. That would be true for the last half of these movies we're going to watch. The next I was going to say, get used to that explanation. But that is not true of this one. This was always conceived as a Hellraiser movie. They just wanted to take it in an unbelievable, new, exciting direction. <laughs> I'll give you. I'll give you a very strong hint for next week. Yeah. Slash spoiler. When it's all happening in someone's fucking head because I've done something wrong, nothing pisses me off more 
Because nothing matters. Film. Nothing matters. Who cares? It's 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 irrelevant. Everything yeah. we've seen yep. in this movie is irrelevant, and it gets even worse. Yeah, oh, Stay yeah. tuned for next week's yeah. episode part two <laughs> of Hellraiser <laughs> as we binge so many fucking films. I've gone insane, and most of them take place in someone's imagination. <laughs> <laughs> fucking hell! It's, it's one. It's, you know, it's like you went to that well one time. It's like, oh, well, it was all a dream. Uh, we're gonna go that well at least two more times. I just, I'm, I'm gonna say this again next week. I reckon yeah. my year seven teacher said to me when I wrote a story once, and it ended with, and it was all a dream except for the mud tracking from the door to the bed. He's like, that is the worst thing you can ever write. But thank God you saved yourself with the mud from the door to the bed. Yeah. These films don't even have any mud tracking from door to bed. They are garbage through and through. What a waste of good suffering. It's time for a recap. <laughs> Coming in dead last. <laughs> no mud, no mud, no bed. Hellraiser Inferno, which I gave a 2 out of 10, and that's generous. Come in number 4. Sorry, Paul. Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth. Boo! I gave... What the fuck did I give? I gave it a 5 out of 10, I think. Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, Come in number 3 is Hellraiser 4, Bloodline, uh, which I gave a 5.5 out of 10. Come in number 2 is Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. Which gave a six out of ten, and coming at number one, going on to the short list is the original Hellraiser, which I give an eight out of ten. Paul, what do you got? All right, my number five. I totally agree with Jason. Hellraiser: Colon Inferno, two point two out of ten. Probably be lower if not for the fact that I had to have some score for some of the other films that are coming up next week on the show. My number four: Hellraiser: Bloodlines, four out of ten. Number three. Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, 6 out of 10. So at least this one passes. Uh, number 2, Hellraiser, the original from 1987 slash 1988, 7 out of 10. And my number 1, much to Jason's consternation and my absolute delight, the nostalgically fueled Hellraiser 3, colon, Hell on Earth, 7.2 out of 10. I always considered <laughs> you a serious person, but now I don't know. All right, coming up next week, as shouted like a fiery evangelist by Paul, six films in the Hellraiser six. series. <laughs> Hellraiser. It took us two and a half hours almost to, re- to record five, but we're not talking for an hour about the first one. You're okay. Hellraiser colon Hellseeker, 2002. 2005's Hellraiser colon Debtor. 2005's Hellraiser colon Hellworld. That one has the internet. There's in all you... That's all you need to know. Two films made at the same time. 2011's <laughs> Hellraiser Revelations. 2018's Hellraiser Colon Judgment. That's the one with the fat pinhead on the cover. Uh, and 2002's Reboot, Remake, Legacy Sequel in different interpretation, uh, just different adaptation. I don't know what the fuck to call it. Hellraiser. <laughs> which went straight to Hulu, (laughs) which is also mostly owned by Disney. Disney loves them some Hellraiser, and we love Disney. Amen. All right, Paul, when you're not here being ripped apart mentally, this is the most fucked you've ever been on a show. I've never heard you in this state. Am I never coming back? 
Oh, you're coming back next <laughs> week to talk about the rest of these fucking oh, movies. Next week? But you, I mean, this these movies boiled your brain. Look, I think I've managed to keep my scores the same and not lost track like I did with the Halloween episode, infamously two, three years ago, whenever yeah. that was. Yeah. So I think I've I've improved as a podcaster at that level. Yeah. Did I enjoy some of these films more? One of these films more than I should? Maybe. Did I do I hate the films, these ones as much as I have some of the other franchises? No. But hold your horses because next week is coming. If you want to hear the pain, yeah. I will bring it next week week uh where you can find me otherwise the countdown podcast we search it on any and all podcasting apps uh, where my my best mate and i wayne other than jason of course will talk <laughs> all kinds of lists from, from top from top to bottom so uh, jason will be back on what do you what do you want to have on what do you want to come on for jason are we doing we're currently just about to start the top 10 films of subgenres or genres of the 21st century what, what, what one other than sci-fi would you like to be on what makes you think that I want to talk about movies? Like I don't have a this podcast. Oh, do you want to do something else? Why and you, yeah, well, another that project that. that you and I are working on together, Ooh, where I make you watch even project? more horror movies. By the time this comes out, yes, where will we be? Will we? Will that happen? Can we talk about it now? Can we yeah, say go over and listen to yeah, this? Yeah, we can. Yeah, the slashes podcast. The slasher podcast. Slashes? Yeah. Fuck, so more, more than two years ago, I approached you, Paul, and said, "I want to do a podcast yeah. with you." where we look at the slashers across all genres, like the A-class, B-class, C-class, D-class of, of slasher films during the slasher boom, roughly 1980 to 1984. We know it started a little bit in the 70s. We know it goes on after 84, we but we want to take a targeted look at time. of A mini-series. Yeah, a, mini a limited series. Limited series where we are joined, uh, and you and I started working on it two years ago, then down the road, mm -hmm. we called on the help of film critic and film scholar yes. Megan Kearns to help us be legitimate. Megan! And uh, we've been working on that now for the better part of this year, uh, mm -hmm. formatting, figuring out what the show was going to be. We've got episodes that are out now on a separate feed. I'll make sure I include yep. a link into these episode notes. It, we talk about the full range of slashers over there at the slashers. Uh, we're talking about the ones you know, the ones you've never heard of, and the ones no one's heard of. We cover it all. And it's been a the fun piece exercise. Of shit to the obscure, to the absolute best of the golden best. Yep. And we go through the year, uh, or at least a good sampling of the years. And then at the end, uh, each of the three of us awards, different awards, best final girl, best VHS cover, best movie poster, Best kill. Best kill. Yeah. Uh, we do all that sort of stuff over there, and we give it a score out of, how, out of five sharp objects. Uh, you know, <laughs> how many punctures, I guess, of sharp objects. And, uh, and and we have had very many heated debate and some very many jovial uh, agreements. So it's interesting. It's been a much – it's been a – having Megan there has helped to keep Jason and I more civil, but at the same time has allowed there to be a third party to – Determine who is the ultimate winner in our debate. So, which is an idea if Megan that was I never here, wanted a part of the show, but you made it a part of the if show. If Megan was here, she would be able to tell you once and for all whether Hellraiser three was good or not, and whether Hellraiser four was worth your time or not. So, there yeah. you go. Uh, look, it's been an absolute blast. It's so much fun. Go over and check it out. It's I don't know exactly where we'll be at this point in time, but probably coming towards the end of yep. the run of the show. If we get enough interest, maybe the maybe. Maybe there'll be a season two. Maybe. Yep. Yep. But uh, if it goes into obscurity, there will be six, seven episodes there 
of the golden slasher era of literally of that subgenre. Check it out and uh, let us know what you think because we would love to know. Yeah, leave us a rating and review for this podcast, for the countdown, and for that podcast. Subscribe to all three. Help us out. Follow Patreon, Patreon stuff where it's available. Follow all YouTube that. channels where it's available. Smash every like button, hit every subscribe button. Do all the things that everybody asks you to do for all of them. The best thing about the Slashers podcast is where it would normally take us two and a half hours to talk about a handful of films. It takes us only about an hour, hour and a half to do the same mm, over there. <laughs> uh, and we cover a lot Jason, of he's ground. On the show, right? Yeah, that's true. We cover a lot of ground. We there's it's it's uh, a little at, at times academic, a little scholarly, a little fan based. Paul's obviously the gore hound on it, and I'm sometimes a little base. Yeah, I'm the cult movie fan. Paul's the gore hound, and uh, I'm the defender of the the drive in movies, uh, the the junk basically. <laughs> And, and Megan is the is the film. No, no, she she gets down and dirty. Oh, sure, she's that's, she's what's, the most what's respectable. What's so awesome about her? Yeah. yeah, but she's absolutely the one, the respectable voice that you should and will listen to. That's right. That's right. Yeah, she's wrong most of the time, but she is respectable. <laughs> Don't, uh, well, she's wrong when she sides <laughs> with Jason, but otherwise, she's totally right. <laughs> All right. Well, we've got one more fucking week of this. Oh, God. Uh, so the last half of the Hellraiser series to round out your spooky time of year for the fourth annual Paul and Jason Halloween <laughs> Spooktacular. Binge Halloween. <laughs> Binge on. <laughs>